did a countdown, and at three, Daniel decided to just look away at a, a cat that went missing in his, in his apartment with uh, windows and doors locked. I hear him. I hear him building something. <laughs> <laughs> having a cat's like having like a little ninja that sometimes likes you and sometimes is going to like slit your throat. Oh no! Having a cat. The problem is he always likes me, <laughs> and he thinks that I like it when he bites me in the back and licks my chin. Well, I do like that. He's falsely kink shaming you. I think he'll like this. I think he'll like half a bird on the doorstep. And whenever he bites me in the back, I hear him meowing, you like this, you little pervert? <laughs> and he throws $2 on the dresser. I don't know what he's alluding to. I don't know where he gets the $2. <laughs> so first off, welcome into LA Meekly, the Los Angeles, his- a Los Angeles history podcast. Um, some would argue the... <laughs> Uh, not me, though. I'm a fan of every single LA history podcast that comes out. I'm sitting on the floor of a closet right now. Yes. Because so, Daniel has COVID. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Don't you. Out me to everybody. <laughs> we just got brought into the courtroom and <laughs> I was your lawyer. And as mm-hmm. we walked in, you pointed at me and said he did it. <laughs> so you might notice things sound a little bit different today because this is a. Uh, Let's just say it. We got to keep them separated. We c- <laughs> that should be when they, in 2051, when they make a... Uh, a COVID movie. A COVID documentary. And then yeah. they, init- they initiate quarantine uh, and we're all our lives are completely turned upside down. They should play, you got to keep them separated. Yeah. As the mayor's on TV saying, it will only last a week. What? Do you... The Zoom just asked me if I was playing music. Oh. That's how great I am at wow. humming music. Oh, my Let's God. Let's see if it, it knows this. Calm down because it's a copyright lawyer asking you. <laughs> <laughs> playing music. I hear a knock on the door. Yeah. <laughs> it's Mr. Zoom Esquire. <laughs> Let's see if it can recognize this beautiful okay. rendition. Yeah. And I... Ah, will always she bangs um yeah it said oh you should have won american idol that's what it's yeah. that's what zoom is telling me now but look let's stop beating around the bush because sure. greg has covid we're on zoom once more okay listen i have <laughs> body snatcher covid it's asymptomatic okay it was, no 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 it was mildly symptomatic you okay, did fine. have symptoms but now you don't sure <laughs> it's it's a little scared of me now because of what we went through last time and all the boost shows i've had yeah let's just say one of us got sick over yeah, the weekend one and one of them has to stay home for the week and it's <laughs> it's the one who's gonna watch all the star trek movies <laughs> i don't know which one of us as opposed to the one who already has <laughs> <laughs> i needed to catch up on beyond oh no it's me <laughs> i outed myself so do you think you know where not this is your COVID exit interview by the way mm-hmm. but do you think yep. you know where you got it or i think knows? i I think I was on the Enterprise when Khan was revealed, and I think I got it around that time. Well, it's because when he was screaming Khan at the end, I could see COVID droplets flying out of his mouth. If you watch it in COVID vision. (laughs) He was screaming, and I was aghast at the reveal that was pretty obvious to everybody. Uh, Yeah, so your mouth. My mouth was wide open. It was like um, the mummy. It was like the baby in Juwan, the the show on Netflix. I don't know what that is. The baby opens his mouth way too big. And you're like, 
not good baby. I've only had COVID once, so I haven't seen that show or movie, <laughs> or movie whatever it is. Bro, you got to get COVID two times. That's when you fit all the good watches in. The first time you're too scared to watch yeah. anything, but the second time you're going to fit a lot of TV in. You gave me COVID two times, baby. <laughs> oh my God. It recognized it again and said you should have died in Paris. Oh no. <laughs> that isn't a COVID thing. That's, a, that's just a Jim Morrison thing. That's pretty cute. I actually thought you were talking about one of the wars for some reason, and it, I don't know why. I almost no, talked no, nobody about... Nobody died in Paris during the wars. So, yeah. So, if things are a little weird, if there's a long gap... <laughs> Great. And... In between laughs? Yeah. Ha. Huh? Ha. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's because we're on Zoom, because we're staying safe and we're responsible people. So, that should count for something. Right? Yeah, it's too hard. It's too a joke you once said. It's too hard to park at your apartment, so I'm just gonna stay home. One of your best jokes that you never did again. <laughs> I, no, I'm something of a one hit wonder, much like Offspring. <laughs> hey, they're a two hit wonder. Before we get into this COVID riddled month, oh, actually, before we get into even last month's COVID riddling, yeah, we have some new Patreon patrons to welcome in. Patrons s plural. Yeah, patron. Wow. Patronuses. Patronuses. We have a couple. It's a deer and one of them's like a badger or something. I can't really. I don't know the small woodland animals, the difference. It's a stag, which is something I didn't understand as an American child growing up. Yeah. I thought it was the movies that a bunch of uncles watch in the garage, but it turned out it's like some kind of deer. It's like a deer or something. Yeah. My Patronus is a drippy old VHS. <laughs> Purposefully unlabeled. It's it's labeled RFK assassination. <laughs> so that nobody watches it. Yeah. Except for some people. <laughs> Leading us straight in from the RFK assassination, this yes. month we are proud to welcome in a different F. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a great name, by the way. We've Let's got hear it. Fred Sprinkle. Fred Sprinkle. Thank you for being a patron of ours, Fred Sprinkle. Yeah. The heir apparent to a fine donut uh, embassy. Uh, em- embassy. Just, uh, it's not empire. A, a fine donut. The donut embassy is where you have to go to get your donut passport. Yeah. But uh, Sprinkles is a cupcake place. You've got COVID. You don't know what you're talking about anymore. No, no, no. A perfect day. Oh, I've never had Sprinkles on donuts before. Oh, okay. You're just talking you're in general. sick. Yeah, in general. In general. Ever since you got COVID, general sprinkles. <laughs> ever since you got COVID, you don't like mentioning brand names anymore. Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm off. I'm out of the matrix now, or whatever, or I'm in the matrix. I don't know, one of the two. I took the red sprinkle. And, uh... <laughs> Do you want a red sprinkle or a blue, blue sprinkle? I want a red, white, and blue pill. Is what I want. Because it's nine eleven. So Fred Sprinkle, which I, I'm glad that we finally got one of Santa's elves to <laughs> support us on Patreon. Boom! You got it. Boom! You got, boom! I just gave you COVID, Fred Sprinkle. <laughs> that roasting was so intense it gave you COVID. A postcard pal? Postcard? Yeah, the, he's at the postcard. But then we have another one who got in late breaking sprinkles. We have here. Oh, we have also. Joining us on the postcard level, Tom V. Tom V? Yeah, Tom. Oh, it's either Tom V or Tom V as in five. Ah, I see. Tom five. Um, (laughs) So we've got one of Santa's elves and one of the robots from Short Circuit is now supporting us on Patreon. We have the missing jet from, uh, who's missing a jet right now? Um, uh, some cat V, some government, one of the governments with guns. I don't know. I can't keep track of all the arms. <laughs> Who do you think Tom V is? What, what do you think? Uh, do you think it's Tom Vanderbeek? I think is it's that- Tom Verlaine, the singer and guitarist for the band Television. But he died recently, so it's probably not him. 
See, you and your lack of brand names these Daves. These Daves. These Daves. All three of these Daves. Is Tom Vanderbeek? Or that's not his name, is it? James Vanderbeek. James my, Vanderbeek. my friend. Oh, that's not who I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about Tom Vanderbeek. I'm talking about the brand name of James Vanderbeek. A realtor. Yeah, Tom <laughs> Vanderbeek. I saw his ad on a bus bench, and I think yeah. this might be him. It's James Vanderbeek's son, and he wants to be a realtor, and he goes to his dad, and he's like, I don't want your life. Remember that movie? I don't know. Remember. It might be Friday Night Lights. Um, <laughs> no, it's Varsity Blues. Again, this is a brand name versus generic. Is it Friday Night Lights or Varsity Blues? And I'm telling you, it's generic football movie. I don't do brands anymore. <laughs> uh, football is big in a town like this movies. So those are our two people. We got Fred Sprinkle and Tomby. And you too can join us on uh, patreon.com slash Meekly At the $5 level, you can uh, get a handwritten postcard from us every single month. And you get any level, you get a Ellie Meekly sticker just for joining. I was going to yes. say free, but you did pay for it. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Fred. I hope uh, I get to send you postcards soon, probably after Daniel. Daniel gets eh. Daniel gets dibs on all Nevermind. the newbies, but I'll get to you. I get the prime meat on these people, and then you can have the, the cartilage that's left. <laughs> I could suck the marrow from the bones. <laughs> but Fred Sprinkle's cartilage? Ooh-wee. <laughs> Tasty. So now let's go to the month prior of... Uh, August. Yeah, no, no, no. Sure. September. September. Yeah, That's the September. Month this is up. October 1st. Wake me up when uh, the month ends. Uh, <laughs> Wake me up when Offspring is on tour with this band. <laughs> I didn't... Uh, my thing of the month... You got COVID. It's, I got COVID from an unnamed source, but I'm going to say that it's it was Tom the B. character Khan from the Star Trek series. <laughs> Listen, I read a book. I've been reading books, audiobooks, going through all of them. And I'd like to recommend... I don't even know you anymore since you had co- you're reading, you're watching. This is me off leash, not going to work anymore, not doing anything. This is you retired. Barely remembering to feed my dog. <laughs> Barely remembering to, where's my cat? <laughs> um, but I read and listened to both Jamie Loftus's book, okay. sort of like a hot dog history, travel log, personal journal called Raw Dog from podcaster, comedian Jamie Loftus. And she has a good section towards the end about Alley Hot Dogs where she manages to also talk about police corruption, uh, the city council, and what makes a good hot dog in the city of LA. And I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm very satisfied with her answers. Uh, One of them is Vicious Dogs with Clothes and it made me really sad because I didn't know until I looked yeah. it up after re- hearing her say it. Yeah, you broke the news to me that Vicious... And also, as of this recording, we just found out that one of the Cupid's yeah. hot dog right across from CSUN is closing. What is... Go- Hot dogs are disappearing left and right. This is what happens when you vote blue. Um, (laughs) Me, I vote yellow for mustard. (laughs) Sometimes green for relish. Yeah, sometimes, depending on my mood. Um, (laughs) But it's a really good, like all the way through, it's a really funny, really good book. It does a good job of making sure you know how hot dogs are made and then proceeding to tell you that's specifically what what other books don't want you to don't want you to know yeah the hot dog is made yeah and her alley section is i i I really love that she ends the whole book going to tommy's which is like Mm. you know the kind of thing that i'm into are there hot dogs any good at tommy's yeah they are somebody recommended that as being the best and i disagree but they are really good what do you think the best hot dog in los angeles is (sighs) i would say vicious dogs whatever the crab one or yeah they had like a crab or lobster dog. No, that said, was really good. I said best. What is the best dog? In I would have also said vicious dogs, but this is shocking 
news. I'm still I mean, reeling from this that it, it's that they they are closed. But it's very upsetting. What is the best dog in LA? You know, I have to get back. Oh, to Oh, it's on Ringo. That. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> but she talks about the best hot dog in the country, and I think on our episode on hot dogs, we both agree with her. What we think the best hot dog in the country is. I don't even remember. Is it one that I made on the stove in some boiling water? Yeah. Researchers around the world, around the globe agree. Costco dogs. Oh, okay. You know what? I Because I'm trying to eat less red meat. And the other day, me and Melissa were at Costco and we wanted... We're the Costco. Anchoring. And we wanted to get a a quick little lunch. And she got a hot dog. And I thought, well, I don't want to eat too much cholesterol. So I got a pizza covered in cheesy cholesterol. Not a whole pizza. A slice of pizza. A slice of pizza. But her hot dog looked so good to me, Greg. It's plump. And I haven't said that since my wedding night. <laughs> you said to an empty car. Um, what'd you do this month? So this September. In this September, it's something that I kept texting you about and you kept being furious about it. I was furious. of some high and mighty idea, misperc- mis- misperception, misconception, yeah, misconception about how my stomach works. Oh my God. But, uh-huh. <laughs> but I was told by my sister about this app called Too Good To Go that okay. is basically spelled, spelled exactly like that or with twos it's got the number twos it has this spanish conjugation of two right. it's got I mean, every yeah. two okay it's got at two brutus is involved it takes two <laughs> uh, go ahead I, I didn't mean to cut you off i just want to make sure everyone knows too, the name too, of the app too good to go but too good so to go. you look at it there's not too many places around la yet i guess huh. or ever which is kind of it, this is almost like a movie pass situation where like you kind of don't want too many people using it because right. it would destroy the whole thing so i shouldn't even be i shouldn't even be, even be telling you about this yeah. this is just between me and my cat <laughs> but who's uh, getting all these bagels <laughs> you look on it and basically like bakeries some restaurants some coffee shops mm-hmm. the excess of like stuff that they didn't sell that day like bread pastries whatever uh, there's pizza places where i do not know i i'm guessing you just get a sack full of slices of pizza but you reserve wow. a time slot and for like five or six or seven dollars you go during this time slot and they give you a sack of what they didn't sell so that it doesn't just get thrown out or wow. donated uh, <laughs> but yeah I, I did it once i did it only one time for schwartz bakery and i got two giant loaves of bread and two chocolate danishes wow that's a score that's a win for you oh that's the kind of win that matters to you as long as i get a lot of things for a little amount of money i'm happy but i can't like i'm really excited to try it in some pizza places and it's just like well this is all of this this is all the marinara sauce we couldn't use because there is an ice cream place near us that's like well you know what we don't scoop at the end of the day we'll just pint it up and yeah here's all the milk we couldn't use here's all the rock salt we couldn't we couldn't put into an ice cream here's all the fred sprinkles that fell on the floor (laughs) (laughs) there's also the the sense of surprise oh right yeah is what's very exciting about it and it's helping food not be wasted yeah that's great and the name of the app one more time is (laughs) et tu brutus To Mama Tambien. <laughs> um, it's too good to go. I, too I, good to go. Depending on where you live, there's more or fewer things that you places that you can go to. There's one place in like Reseda that just gives you a a bag of animal bones. <laughs> Were you an old witch? 
Oh yeah, it's it's from the Bethesda hut. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's uh, look. Let's get into September, October already. October. Oh, this is a COVID. This is a COVID. <laughs> we're having a mass COVID hysteria right now. So for this episode, it's October. You. Phantom just kicked the DVD remote on the floor. What a badass. What a little stinker. He wants to watch Star Trek 2. The Next Generation. Star Trek 2. Yeah. Good to go. (laughs) Star Trek 2 Klingon Tom Vien. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Now he's here. My favorite of the Meekly host is the one who's the most disruptive. (laughs) And it's not me now. Yeah, it used to be me. So uh, the idea behind this one was Halloween, you're dressing up. Spooky, spooky, you go trick-or-treating, you go too good to going. Yeah. So this time we're going to be talking about costume, not so much costume, but fashion designers, two iconic fashion people in Los Angeles. They're both werewolves. That's the tie into October yeah. uh, that we didn't mention is that they were both, both of ours are werewolves. Yeah. Mine, mine got bit by a cowboy and yours got bit by a really short lady. <laughs> she got bit by San Bernardino. <laughs> Oh, that'll make I, sense in a minute. Yeah, uh, the, with the Zoom recording, I have a little more flexibility in editing, so I'll <laughs> drop that joke a little. I appreciate it. Oh, oh, look, Zoom also recognizes when we're making jokes. <laughs> Is this funny? Question mark. It says, "We'll let you know when you make one." That's what a, a note notice says. Yeah. It has like the get loud a meter. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. In a sports stadium, but it's there's a video of a hook coming out, and then your feet <laughs> just goes dead. In ten jokes, you will be taken <laughs> off this Zoom. All right, so let's let's get it started with your. You're going to tell us about your little lady. I'm going to talk about my little old lady, who's not that old when we start the story, but we'll get to her. Being She's old. got old energy. She's got old lady energy, and yeah. I like that about her. I'm going to be talking about Edith Head, oh. famed one of the one of the most famous and most crafty costume designers in Hollywood history. Crafty. Don't. She's crafty. She's crafty. I was just, she's a craftsman. She That's what she is. A craftsman. Don't leave her person. with an open door because she will She will get right out. She'll get right out. Edith Head. Born Edith Posner. She came into this mess in October of 1897. Born in San Bernardino. 1897? 1897. In San Bernardino? Yeah. They had horses all the way up to the 60s. Wasn't, um, it, wasn't it just like Mormons in San Bernardino in 1897? I don't know. It's not in L.A. County. <laughs> Please don't tell me. She, yeah. <laughs> My registry of Mormons ends at the county line. <laughs> <laughs> so her father, Max, was an immigrant from Prussia who came to the U.S. in 1876. Wow. Her mother, Anna, was a Jewish woman from St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, yeah. Max and Anna did not stay together for long, and Anna often married a man named Frank Spare, making little Edie Posner now Edith Spare. Their name. Okay. It's unfortunate. It's a funny name. Um, <laughs> strangely, Anna and Frank were telling people they met that Frank was Edith's biological child and Edith was now being raised in a Catholic church despite being born Jewish. Mormon. Oh. <laughs> so close. <laughs> What, like what? To to make people think she's not Jewish so that they wouldn't be mean to her? I, I suppose, but also... Mean or worse? Or f- <laughs> your mom was a Jewish lady? Uh, you might be a person of the Jewish faith. <laughs> That's the rules. Frank was either a miner, M-I-N-E-R, or a mining engineer, but either way, because of his occupation, the spares moved a lot throughout Arizona, Mexico, and Nevada. Searchlight Nevada is listed on some websites as her hometown. She once said of her childhood, I didn't have what you would call an artistic or cultural background. We lived in the desert and we had burros and jackrabbits and things like that. So it's that just doesn't like. doesn't sound like the San Bernardino I know. No, certainly. Where's the flying cars? <laughs> 
Where's the 7-Eleven on every block? Where's the masters in fine arts that every single <laughs> resident has? There's artists spilling over into the streets of San... Renaissance people. Yeah, the, the Louvre Sister Museum is in San Bernardino. <laughs> right next to the original... What was Taco the original? Bell? Yeah, or... right next to the original Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Their Louvre is shaped like a chalupa. <laughs> Welcome to San Bernardino. <laughs> and with most things with kids who move around a lot, Edith was an incredibly solitary child who spent most of her time just daydreaming. Out of high school, Edith attended UC Berkeley, graduated in 1919, and went on to Stanford, where she was awarded a master's in Romance Languages. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was so long ago. Those were just languages back then. They were just languages. It was was just Latin. (laughs) They're going to try to give it an overarching title, but it was mostly Latin. (laughs) Et tu, mama, tambien, Brutus? (laughs) For the last time, no. (laughs) Then so is horny Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) So this was 1920, and Edith Spare went from being in classes to teaching them. She started as a language teacher at Bishop School in La Jolla, uh, where our uh, Conan left us for, and then moved on to Hollywood School for Girls, now the Women's Club of Hollywood, where she taught French, even though that was not her native tongue. Well, she lies about, they seem to lie about her origins over and over, so I'm sure she... There's a lot of lying in this story, uh, so stick with me. (laughs) But teaching languages was not her passion. Her true passion was getting paid more money than whatever job she was at. And being an art teacher at the school would give her more money. So she applied for and was given the job, even though Edith had lied and actually had no (laughs) art experience. So as I call it... But she's from San Bernardino. I don't understand. Basic Marge Simpson giving piano lessons while learning piano. Just You just have to stay one lesson ahead of the students. You have to stay one stroke ahead of the students. Yeah. (laughs) Do we use purple in this? Purple, purple. (laughs) Give me a week. They're still in their impressionist phase. I'm in my blue phase, so I I should be okay. I know where noses go still. Am I in trouble? (laughs) So to compensate for this, Edith started taking night classes at Otis Art Institute and the Coenard Art College. Schuinard, isn't it? Oh, is it Schuinard? I didn't know. Still got Conan on the brain. I've got Conan on the brain. The man from La Jolla. Which we should explain really quickly because we make that reference a lot. One time we saw Conan and it was a bunch of people trying to talk to Conan as we were. And he kept mm-hmm. saying like, ah, I got to go. I got to go to La Jolla. I got to go to La Jolla. And we couldn't. As he continued signing and taking pictures with a crowd of people kept saying, I have to go to La Jolla. For everybody but us. And but then when it became saying, the Meekly Boys turn. Yeah. I have to go to La Jolla. Had you not heard that I have to go to La Jolla? La Jolla is more important than you. That's when Sona came out and said he's got to go to La Jolla. Yeah, and she patted our backs and she she pushed us downstairs. It was a pratfall. (laughs) But back to Edith Head. Schoenart Art College. Schoenart Art College. It's here where she would meet her future husband and next surname, Charles Head. Uh, They married and now Spare became Head. Charlie Head was a traveling salesman, and this line of work allowed Edith to continue living in a very solitary way. The relationship was rocky from the start, both because of his absence, which she was maybe okay with, and his drinking, which she was not a fan of. In 1923, Paramount Studios put out an ad in the LA Time classified looking for a costume sketch artist. For Edith, she was perhaps feeling like the married life was not for her, and maybe to distract herself, maybe to move up in the world. She applied for the position despite still not having a great artistic skill set. What a women just had it so easy back then; <laughs> they could just keep lying and failing upwards. Uh, what a what a ha, like. How did they hire her? Like there had to have been some sort of. You okay. can't see me right now. I'm sm- I'm grinning very wide. <laughs> yeah, you turned it to the Cheshire cat. Mm. Um, the Grinch when he's about to do something really awful. <laughs> also from La Jolla. Um, 
It's said that Edith went to the interview with a borrowed portfolio and got the position. I've read borrowed, but it sounds more like she created a portfolio of her classmates' best works, landscapes, seascapes, oil sketches, and presented them as her own. What's the word for that? It's <laughs> still it till you reel it. Is that the phrase that people always use? She was a modern day George Santos. <laughs> Two American legends. <laughs> <laughs> According to themselves. Yeah. The children of America. Edith was offered the job of costume sketch artist working under the talented Howard Greer of famous players Lasky's. He was famous player Lasky's chief designer who was enamored with Edith's artistic skill, which was, again, not hers. Not her, not her skill set. I love how varied your style is and how your signature is different every time. Every single time. <laughs> Greer himself created costumes for looks for Shirley Temple, Mary Pickford, Gloria Swanson, mm. Ginger Rogers, Cat Hepburn, and Theta Barra, among many others. He provided a full wardrobe for Garbo and designed the wardrobe for Shirley Temple and Gloria Vanderbilt. Like their personal wardrobe was designed by That's Howard weird. Greer. Did Shirley Temple always wear the little lollipop dresses? That's the yeah. best way I can describe them. Yeah, her funeral dress was also, it was a black lollipop affair. Bury me in my best poodle skirt. <laughs> With my best poodle, alive or not. <laughs> Edith's ruse didn't last long. How could it? And eventually Greer caught on that Edith was not as talented as she presented herself to be. Her true talent, of course, was the con. Um, con! con! Uh, that's what Greer said. Watch out, she might get COVID. <laughs> But Greer did not fire her. He became her mentor and said teaching Edith how to sketch and more importantly, how to establish and develop a rapport between the movie star and the designer. He could have okay. easily just ended Edith's right. head, but he chose to <laughs> recognize Moxie, recognize a liar, and that liars don't deserve what you're about to give them. And he rewarded her instead. Uh, which he did say to her explicitly, I could end you right now. I could end it. You're an ant and I am a boot. And I could just like... Off with the head. Off with... Uh, Great, great. <laughs> I've been living alone with a cat for like a week now. Melissa's out of town. This is this is all I've got. <laughs> uh, Phantom just taps you on the shoulder like, it's okay. Yeah. It's all right, man. Uh, let let We're me good. take over. I'll, I'm on it. I'm on it. One of Edith Head's first solo assignments was for Cecil B. DeMille's 1925 film, The Golden Bed, where she was... <laughs> to design the costumes for the candy ball. The design she created called for costumes made of actual lollipops, oh, wow. peppermint sticks, and chocolate drops. Well, of the costumes were? They weren't made strictly of that. They were like adorned with it. Like they right. were, um, what's the word, decorated with it. But they okay. weren't like, but they, they were part of the design itself. So they could be eaten in an emergency. Yeah, and it should be. Um, of course, production came to a full stop when the peppermint sticks began sticking together and the chocolate started melting under studio lights. Of course. That's why you got to go with the dark chocolate when you're making <laughs> a costume covered in chocolate. They hadn't invented dark chocolate yet. <laughs> with DeMille going full Hulk mad at her, Head quickly put together a marshmallow studded dress with matching marshmallow hat, shoes, and a necklace to solve the problem. Ha, huh, glad that'll never happen again. This person became the first seize candy when, <laughs> when, the, when the studio lights melted them into their costume. <laughs> It's like the Joker origin story. Yeah, this is how s'mores were invented. <laughs> well, great. Glad it'll never happen again. In Raul Walsh's 1925 film, The Wanderer, same year, by the way, Head was assigned to dress an elephant. So she chose to drape no. over the animal some flowers and grapes. It looks great, but it tasted even better for the <laughs> elephant, who, of course, ate all of it. Once again, bringing production to a halt, a startling, abrupt halt. Some speed bumps on the road to success, sure, but Edith was learning and never making the same mistake 
twice. More importantly, well, she well, a, mean, simil- a similar mistake is not the same mistake. Yeah, a similar mistake many times, but never. <laughs> yeah, she but never, never put a marshmallow on a suit again. She never made an, an elephant like a marshmallow yeah. necklace or anything like that. She never forgot to not do that again. <laughs> <laughs> More importantly, she was building a rapport with the actresses she was working with. While some studios did not want any input from the stars, Edith Head would approach them and ask them if they had a clothing preference or a style <laughs> preference that they like to lean on. Uh, marshmallows. More marshmallows. More, yeah. An elephant pretending to be Shirley Temple. Uh, more, <laughs> mal- more, more marshmallows. <laughs> she studied her stars and their body types and movements, all to make her star look like a star. With this, actresses she worked for actively sought her and vouched for her. Liz Taylor, one of her closest friends, Marlena Dietrich. Bab Stanwyck, Grace Kelly were not only collaborators, they had become her fans at this point. Hmm. She was being referred to as the dress doctor or simply the doctor. <laughs> Dr. Dress, as they called it. So so it wasn't just movies, like she was making their day-to-day clothes at this point? Or not no? yet, but okay. she will. But at this point, she's just working on films that these actresses are in. And some of them are kind of stars and some of them are on their way up. Right. Uh, her motto was accentuate the positive and camouflage the rest. <laughs> it's unclear when Edith Head adopts the look. That being like bangs, circular, dark glasses, and being short. But it's, it's no exaggeration to say it. It's an iconic look. Like if you put those on a silhouette or whatever, if you just leave those out, like people will look at me like, oh, that's Edith Head right. stuff. Are you going to talk about? Just a little bit. Okay. Because talk about- speaking, just speaking of her look, like you know what she looks like. All mm-hmm. Everybody who's listening to this knows what she looks like and you will explain why soon. Yes, I, I will. Uh, we're talking about a certain Pixar character? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm looking, Woody from Toy Story. Actually, that's my guy. <laughs> I'm looking straight into your cat's butthole. And what do you see about yourself? Huh? The future. Um, <laughs> the future of this industry. Oh, about Edith Head, I said she looks like Roy Orbison's sister. <laughs> but, so you're saying she was albino? <laughs> Part of me thought that she might be albino, which led me to think that she might actually be. You're only thinking that because of this ridiculous urban legend that Roy over... Ridiculous! But but that's not not how all albino people dress. Fake dark hair and black sunglasses. Oh my god. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. I love the general lies. Some of them do, and maybe two of them are really famous for it. Who's the second one? Oh, Edith Head. Edith Head, yeah. Because I was thinking of uh, Jonathan Winters. (laughs) Or not Jonathan Winters, Edgar Winters. Edgar Winters is a better one. Yeah. Her glasses we should talk about because this is something I didn't know. So she has uh, the famous circular glasses. Her glasses were special because they were blue lensed glasses. So she can get a sense of how her looks would be affected by a black and white photography of the cameras that she was shooting with at the time. That's because I knew the round glasses. I didn't really clock well enough that they were like darker shade glasses. And then when I started reading about them, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. There are like they're yeah, almost sunglass they... types, but you can always see her eyes. OK, so wait. So it was to so it was filtering out just like natural or it was like a blue lens so she would get a better idea of how something would look through a black and white oh camera. okay okay yeah. okay that's weird why don't she just wear black and white glasses <laughs> one black and one white um yeah. why does she just walk around wearing 3d glasses like biff's friend <laughs> uh which i think was billy not billy zane who's the guy from titanic billy zane is that billy zane then who am billy, i who's i don't know who's in back to the future too who's the guy from um that thing you do oh that's not billy zane what's that guy's name 
The Wait, silly one. Oh, um, Steve Zahn. Steve Zahn. Steve Zahn. Right. Okay. A young Steve Zahn. So the, the glasses trick was not strictly an Edith trick. That was like an old cinematographer's or oh, okay. some some cra- cinema craftsman. But she was the one who took that look and made like she, it defined her basically or she yeah. defined the look. One of the two. Now, I'm thinking of this king, this player on the Kings who has a tinted, uh, he wears a tinted visor and that's because it like dims the lighting of Staples Center. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And that kind of became his signature look. Is he Roy Orbison? Oh my god! No, oh my, it, that's how I know him. It's Jonathan Winters, the improv comedian, <laughs> the the famously albino improv comedian, <laughs> Jonathan Winters. So towards the end of the twenties, her mentor Howard Greer left famous Lasky players now Paramount and was replaced by another designer, Travis Banton. Banton is now remembered as having created the Paramount look, quote unquote. Created costume designs for many movies, but here's uh, the ones that I've heard of. <laughs> Wings. Okay. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Shanghai Express, Design for Living, and My Man Godfrey, among many, 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 many other credits. So what year was this that she's working? End of the 20s. Oh my God. That was yeah. that long ago that she got into movies? Yeah. and then she, Wings like, was the first movie to win an Oscar. That's how long, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's how long she's been, she's been working since like a little bit before that. And Tony Shalhoub was in it. And, uh, oh God, what's the, there, there are two, there are two that made it through that and they're yeah. both the dumb characters. Right. Thomas Hayden Church. Oh, Thomas Hayden Was Church, also in. Yeah. And Jonathan Winters. <laughs> Could you believe it? A middle-aged Jonathan Winters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it never aged to that man. Banton designed the wedding dress for Mayor Meekly herself, Mary Pickford. Uh, just a her little wedding thing dress. I okay. Her wedding dress, yeah. Edith then moved from sketch artist to assistant designer under Banton. She worked for some time on B-Westerns and some background costume for big studio projects, but Banton and Head got along and he saw her potential. He assigned her to work on the 1927 epic, like I said, Wings, where she designed outfits for Clara Bow, who would become one of her closest friends. Hmm. Two years later, she designed for Lupe Valles in 1929's The Wolf Song. And then, 1929, the depression hit. But this time, it gave Edith an opportunity and permission to go bigger with designs. Because what happens to the movies during the, the 30s, they all get big and lavish and outrageous because right. everyone's eating their own shoe. <laughs> so a lot, of, like, a lot of studio moguls took the social temperature of the country and thought, since the citizens were eating their shoes, let's say, stars should dress big and go big. Everything yeah. should be big. Their shoes should look really tasty. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, your, your cat is outrageous. He, this is exactly why he gets locked into the bedroom when we record things. Oh, he's, hilar- he's being hilarious right now. <laughs> I think he just tried to bop you. He's doing pratfalls now. He's spinning a cane. He's doing his, a tight five now. <laughs> he ki- he kicked the mouse. He doesn't understand. As, he understands. As a cat would. He understands it's a mouse, but not that sort of mouse. <laughs> He's trying to break it in half to leave half of it on a... So Edith's salary dropped during the depression from $40 a week to $25 a week. Luckily, she had her contract renewed and didn't do something crazy like, I don't know, pass Birth of a Nation off as her own to get a director's job. I don't know. She could have done that. Paramount was now realizing what an asset this small, bespectacled woman was and pushed for her to become as big as any other renowned crew member. She can't. She's so She's so small. Eventually, she'd be getting... I, I don't mean for this to sound like a classic setup, but how small was she? Do we know? I can look it up. I didn't take no. The depiction we know of her is quite mm-hmm. small. Cartoonishly small because it's a cartoon. Because uh, it's a cartoon. But I want to know, like, was she, you know, is it like Napoleon where it's like, yeah, he was small compared to our standards? I just looked it up. America, just that is. America. Uh, <laughs> we measure in inches, not Celsius or whatever. Um, 
He's four Celsius. <laughs> He's 12 apples tall, Greg. I just typed it in and the result is 5-1. Okay, that's pretty small. So she's a little taller than you. <laughs> I am famously four foot seven. <laughs> Wolverine's height without the hair. Paramount was now realizing what an asset the small bespectacled woman was and pushed for her to become as big as any other renowned crew member. She was eventually getting paid $175 a week from the drop in her pay, which was $25. They were now pushing for her to make even, you know, a quadruple uh, a million times. And not only that, but somehow not more important to me, not to her to get an on-screen credit. The the first one being for 1933's May West vehicle. She done him wrong. Her salary was bumped up from after that point to $200 a week by 1934. She designed for Shirley Temple for Little Miss Marker the same year. 1936 is a huge year for Edith for two reasons. One, she gets to sing all the single ladies at karaoke because she filed for divorce from Charles Head. Uh-oh. And two, uh, But she kept the name? She kept the name because the other one was Spare. Well, it was her spare name. It was her spare name. So she's going to stick with Head. She created one of her first landmark looks that can be like easily tied not only to the actress wearing it, but to the designer. This was the sarong dress designed for Dorothy L'Amour in The Jungle Princess, a sexy pinup look that defined L'Amour. She was even referenced to as the sarong girl and made Edith Head costume designer you had to work with. Hmm. I've no, have you seen this? Have you seen this I, dress? Have, you seen, have this? you seen this dress? I, 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 are you hearing about this? you see this? Yeah, I've seen it. it. It's basically like, I guess the look starts here, but it's like jungle native girl. Okay. Like it, it's a uh, uh, sarong is uh, it's stro- like, like uh, garment wrapped around your body as a dress. Like Raquel Welch in whatever that movie is where they're, a, she's a, a little, cave woman. A little m- more like a one piece. For some reason, Raquel oh, Welch okay. is wearing a two piece. Right. I think <laughs> they didn't know shame back then. They hadn't eaten the apple of, of snakes yeah. or whatever. The apple of what is it? The apple of truth. I don't know. I, I, I only know it from, Simpsons references. Um, <laughs> this was something Lamore struggled to escape from as the sword became her shorthand and she found herself having to return to the jungle native girl look right. several times. Like the way Jack Pierce, if I understand it, the way Jack Pierce defined iconography or monsters is similar to head designing one for the right. native jungle girl look. Like it, that's how iconic it was. Boris Karloff also desperate to escape everyone thinking he's Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You should have probably kept your teeth in. <laughs> you, for that one, pal. You probably shouldn't have worn the two-piece. That being his removable teeth. <laughs> his top and lower half. His top and lower half, yeah. Of his body. 1939, Travis Banton was out. Some people think that this was at the insistence of Edith, but um, I don't really know. And she assumed the role of head designer for Paramount, the uh, first woman to head. hold that title. Is that why the they studio. call it a head designer? Head designer, yeah. Actually, it's capital H head designer because it's. <laughs> she was now working on costume designs for 30 movies a year, and she was working on high fashion outside the studio. She made an ad in Fashion Plate Shoes, which was a magazine. The tagline read, look for Edith Head's autograph on the insole. Like, that's like now she's becoming, like, she's transcending my name is in the credits to like, I am part of fashion history now. Like, I'm the name in the now. I thought it was going to be something like, look for Edith's head on your toes. What's in the box? Um, <laughs> her commentary was included in Photoplay magazine regarding Paris Couture. She became a frequent fashion feature for the magazine as the years went on in a photo for a Photoplay. In 1940, Edith married an art director named Bill Bapo Ainen. 
Bill Bapo Ainen, and the two stayed married until he died in 1979. He was an animatronic clown. Yeah, he was in the in the Chuck E. Cheese band for a while, and then he got <laughs> out to be an art director. She took on a new assistant, a Russian-Italian aristocrat who had fled Russia and then had to flee Italy and come to America. This new assistant was Oleg Cassini, the man responsible for Jackie Kennedy's defining style. He also worked with Johnny Carson on his men's fashion line, which was launched on The Tonight Show. He only worked briefly at Paramount as he left to fight World War II and then didn't come back to Paramount. Um, but like that's wait a, a minute. That's, wait a minute. Did he come back anywhere, or did he, he just know? Okay, he came back. He did, yeah, because the Jackie, the, both those things happened oh, after World true. War II. This I don't is need, a good point. Johnny Carson's childhood talk show. He <laughs> launched the men's fashion line. Um, the before bedtime show. <laughs> Still racking up the ladies on that show, though. Still, still getting it. I thought the new euphemism was he died in battle. Was he didn't come back to Paramount? <laughs> did he buy the farm or did he not come back to Paramount? Um, <laughs> Is he in a better place? <laughs> yeah, Warner Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the commissary there? Jeez, Louise, <laughs> salmon every day. During the wartime rations of most industries, when designs were being turned into bullets for the war effort, Edith promoted cotton over silk, which helped the boys overseas somehow. And push for double duty clothes like coats with removable lining and reversible clothing items. Like that was her part in trying to help the war effort. So you're saying that all of our soldiers could have been wearing silk if Edith Head hadn't made them use cotton? Hugo Boss was on the battlefield and he was telling Nazi <laughs> officers to not shoot through silk because it was too expensive. Yeah, we let, have ended let them the war. just starve. Let them, yeah, then we could have ended the war that way, yeah. <laughs> this could have been Oppenheimer. <laughs> they should make an Oppenheimer about Hugo Boss. <laughs> Grading jackets that I look at and like, wow, that jacket. I know it's a Nazi, but man, that jacket's something else. Miss Head, do you know the repercussions of making a suit made entirely <laughs> of velour? Do you know what this could unleash upon the world? And she like, <laughs> Tommy Hilfiger's hat flies off and he whis she whispers something to him. We're designing for a young woman from uh, Boston, uh, Kennedy, uh, uh, Jack Jackie O, Jackie O Kennedy, yeah. even though she hasn't taken the O yet. <laughs> Edith has her own Marvel suit up moment, like Oppenheimer hand, where she puts on like the dark glasses and she puts right. bangs on. Yeah. <laughs> and then she grows, she like shrinks two feet. <laughs> she she reverse. well, I guess she does Ant-Man. <laughs> I was going to say a reverse Ant-Man, but I was thinking when Ant-Man gets big, which oh, he yeah, giant man. is only partially known for. But in my, in my mind, Ant-Man is known for getting big. Yeah. You know, a giant man. Gi <laughs> I just got the other day. Giant man. Ant man. Oh. Giant man. This movie has so many. Much like an an ant farm, it has so many layers. <laughs> so many layers. There's so much going on. Uh. Edith worked on the spectacular The Lady Eve, where she designed 25 costumes for Barbara Stanwyck. She designed an outfit for our girl Ginger Rogers in 1944's Lady in the Dark, and that was said to be one of the most expensive dresses in Hollywood history. It cost thirty five thousand dollars. That's ridiculous. To, what was it covered in marshmallows? It was covered in marshmallows, but they were all they weren't from the marsh. They were from the swamps. Um, swamp mellows. Swamp no, mellows. all the marshmallows were still going towards the war effort. <laughs> These are swamp mellows. <laughs> the skirt was made of mink fur and lined with swirls of sequins over a matching sequin bodysuit and a mink jacket with a mink muff. Oh my god! It all came from like Paramount's mink vault or whatever, yeah. which I read and I was trying to like understand what that meant. But uh, this dress cost thirty. $35,000 to make. That's ridiculous. In 1946, she makes a fortuitous connection with when Paramount loans her skills out to RKO for Notorious being made by Alfred Hitchcock, who would become one of her biggest allies and fans. He was a fan of hers. Uh, Hitchcock was. was Hitchcock was very particular and insistent on things like color and fabric. And so was Edith. So their likenesses blended perfectly. 
and she becomes one of his best female collaborators, like producer Joan Harrison, that, you know, both these women, he didn't throw birds at when they took down his sexual advances. So, you know, that's when you know you're in the good with him. When you're in the bad <laughs> is when he tries to kill you with birds. He only, he threw topazes at her instead. <laughs> this he, is for you, for yeah, you. Here's some rope. <laughs> I'm just going through Alfred Hitchcock's I got, I got IMDb a little, like, page. Yeah. We're on Zoom right now, so I'm able to do that. I could, IMDb is at the tip of my fingertips right now. I can type all kinds of his movies. He was throwing strangers at a train on her. <laughs> he was throwing rear windows at her. <laughs> Front ones were too expensive. After creating designs for Ingrid Bergman and Notorious, she moved on to her work that I know her from. Like when I watch these movies and you tell me, like, think of an Edith headdress. These are all the movies I think of. Right. Did she ever make a headdress? That's very funny. Uh, fun. All her all her dresses are headdresses. <laughs> she worked on Grace Kelly's look in Rear Window. Her character in the movie is a socialite whose looks and style are incredibly important to her. So Edith had to really outfit Grace to the nines. And she it had to be perfect in that movie. And the dresses in that and fashion in that movie are impeccable. Part of Hitchcock's mise-en-scene. Um, mise-en-scene. Mise-en-scene. You, know, you don't know the language. Whatever language that is. Uh, yeah, her outfits are like part of the whole thing did she me. make james stewart's cast yeah she made the cast she made the pajamas she made all the stuff for thelma ritter she made um what's the name of the actor who plays the guy across the way i don't um, know raymond burr is it raymond, oh, Not is raymond it? burr it's aaron burr Air, it's yeah it's aaron burr oh jonathan winters <laughs> <laughs> he's certainly jonathan winters shaped yes let's just say we know what season he was born <laughs> anyways though like her dresses because of her character her dresses are incredibly important in that movie and part of like taking in on the whole hitchcock of it all right is edith head is part of that arm like one of the arms of hitchcock in that i mean for making that <laughs> similarly she had to create looks similar looks for kim novak's look in vertigo which she did novak told this is a weird story it sounds like it's pro Edith Head's diplomacy, but the more I think about it, it's very anti-Hitchcock. But <laughs> Novak told Head she could wear any color but gray. She was like styled that way. They said, hey, you look good in any color, but don't wear gray. And Hitchcock told Head about Novak. It could be any color as long as it's gray. <laughs> Funny. Great. Head went to Novak with fabric swatches of shades of gray and said, it's got to be gray, but left it up to Novak to choose the shading that would flatter her the most. Hmm. Hitchcock sounds kind of like an asshole. <laughs> Head went on to design Tippy Hedren's dress in The Birds and uh, something that appeased Hitchcock's need. She had to appease both Hitchcock, who wanted to be the soft green and blue that it is, and also mobile enough for Hedren to run around it because she runs around and gets most of it torn off in that movie. Right. So that dress that she wears and the famous dress she wears in the movie is Edith Head. Hmm. By the early 50s, she was creating iconic looks for did, Betty Davis and all, what, what? Did she make the costumes for the birds? She made the costume for the birds and the bird that all the, the birds that Hitchcock threw at Tippi Hedren. Yeah, those were actually rats. Those are actually rats dressed like birds. And that was <laughs> Edith Head's design. A lot of people know that. Nobody's smart enough to ask questions like you. Yeah, I'm pretty smart. <laughs> By the early 50s, she was creating iconic looks for, let's rattle off the big ones. Okay. Betty Davis and All About Eve. Oh. Liz Taylor's dress in A Place in the Sun, which I didn't know this, inspired prom dresses for the rest of time. Oh, that's weird. Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. Grace Kelly in To Catch a Thief. Shirley MacLaine's insane outfits in What a Way to Go. Audrey Hepburn in Roman Holiday, Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina, Audrey Hepburn in Funny Face, Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Although with this, there's speculation that was actually Hepburn's personal designer, who is Hubert du Givenchy, uh, like the oh. big name. They think that it was actually Givenchy designing it and Edith took credit, which sounds like an Edith Head thing, but right. we don't, I don't think really know. So you're saying that Edith Head was 
as I pronounce it, Gavenchi? Yeah, she was Gavenchi. Oh my God. So this is the Gavenchi code. This is. <laughs> it was Edith Head all along. Givenchy. Givenchy. I had a. Mise en scène. Givenchy. Mise en scène. Um, so it's not known if she did Hepburn's outfits for those movies, but like they look similar enough to all the other outfits that she was designing. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't bump me that they were Edith Head designs. But it's for more research. And I didn't have time because I had COVID. <laughs> you had COVID. I had COVID brain. It's been very hard for me to do anything except watch all the Star Trek movies. <laughs> in 1948, during the Oscar ceremonies, it's said that Edith had sat in a state of dumb shock because she did not win for the Emperor's Waltz. I would have loved... Uh, did she walk on stage and slap whoever won? <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved she just stood on stage and was just like, dumbfounded mouth agape <laughs> dumbfounded that she didn't win keep my fashion designer's name <laughs> out of your oscar ceremony <laughs> off of your shoulders <laughs> keep my Givenchy. um <laughs> by the middle of the 1960s edith was now earning ten thousand dollars a week that way more than true way a little bit more than an art teacher and because of her appearances on Arc Linkletter's house party, I don't know. She was Teachers now, get paid a lot of money. Yeah, almost ten thousand dollars a week, but not especially quite. art teachers. Yeah. Especially art teachers in California. What do they make? Like nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine <laughs> <laughs> taxes. They're going to rob you of that dollar. She was because <laughs> Thanks, of her Hunter Biden. <laughs> Thanks, Hunter Biden's laptop. <laughs> And gun? I don't know what's and happening. Dong picks? I don't know. She was transcending like regular crew person, regular fashion person into household name thanks to Arc Linkletter's house party, which she made in like a common she was a common occurrence on House Party. Because of her iconic look, you could spot several cameo roles through the late sixties and seventies of Edith Head being on things. Most notably, I admit that I caught her in a cameo role. 1973's Columbo episode, Wrecking for a Fallen oh. Star. You see Edith Head in the background designing something. She published her own fashion book titled How to Dress for Success. But TV had kicked movies in the nuts and Paramount was cutting all the costs that they could. And for some insane reason, we did not renew Edith Head contract after this. The year was 1967 and the now 70-year-old Edith Head moved over to Universal where she once again worked with Hitchcock on his movies Topaz and uh-huh. created looks created the looks for uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Huh. The Sting, which is easy. You just keep the same measurements. Just add 20 years to all the costumes and you got the same outfits. And Sweet Charity, which she got an Oscar nomination for. Did she win this time? Uh, you I, said I'm nomination, pretty, so I guess not. In total, through her career, she was nominated 35 times, one of Oof. the most nominated Hollywood women in history of the game. Uh-huh. She won, uh-huh. and she won for eight of them. Ooh, that's a lot of silence. That's a lot of mouth that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of sitting in silence, Ken, <laughs> not believing you didn't win. Oh, that's the, the best reaction you can have to not winning at the Oscars, other than slapping somebody. Well, I guess he wasn't. He did yeah, that win. Was, it, he a, did <laughs> He just won. No, no, no. He didn't win yet. He was about to win. You're right. He was about to win. But the I best, forgot. the best reaction should be just like, like you, you just saw someone get mugged on the street. But again, work dried up at the studio, and Edith started working for TV and magazines at this point, creating an evening dress for Vogue. My mom, when attending LA Trade Tech, there was a design conference, and Edith Head was the speaker. Oh, that's she weird. said she said she gave great advice. Nothing my mom could remember, but her presence was enough. Like being in the same bangs. room as Edith Head. If there's one thing you remember, get bangs. Get bangs. She bangs. Be short. Be short. Wear glasses. As my mom noted, and I hadn't really thought about Edith Head. Something interesting is that she designed such like glamorous and lavish looks through the years, but her own look is very conservative. 
very like uh, I, I'm all I know her from is from what you haven't mentioned yet, and if and I'm thinking, yeah, it's pretty conservative. I'm a uh, yeah, that cartoon character is pretty conservative, yeah, as as you say, easy to animate, easy. Yeah, the uh, silhouette's already there. Yeah, yeah, that's her fashion style, easy to animate. Her personal favorite project was creating uniforms for the new women recruits for the U.S. Coast Guard, which they was new at the time, and they put her in charge of designing outfits, and re- she received the meritorious public service award for her work. She retired in 1977, but was summoned out of her career slumber for her expertise in 1940s fashion. This was for the 1982 Steve Martin movie, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid with Steve Martin and Carl Reiner. I think it's Carl Reiner movie. Did she make the plaid? She, yeah, because she's a dead man. She made all the plaid. Um, That was her last project, though. She died days That's before. That's insane that she yeah. was working in the silent movie era and her last movie was Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. She has, as <laughs> and, a, as and a, it stretched that far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it stretched that far. Much like her clothes. We don't know that. Um, yeah, dude, I don't want to impugn I don't her want stitching. To she, her career is very much like Jack Pierce, like was the name that transcended her department. Right, right. Created iconic looks forever and then ended their career making like a weird thing, like making like Mr. Ed or whatever and then like died. Yeah, yeah that that's you either die Edith Head or you live long enough to work on Mr. Head. Mr. <laughs> Ed. Mr. Head, I almost called it. Mr. Her. Head, yeah. Her that's, dad was Mr. Uh, sorry, Head. Not, she's not married to Mr. Head anymore. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> uh, she died days before her 84th birthday in 1981 and the movie was dedicated to her memory. I, 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 I have yet to see that one. The follow-up to The Jerk. Is it really? Yeah, but not the same a, character. No, no. It's just okay. the movie after. A spiritual sequel. It's the Billy Madison to... It's the Billy Madison to that. Or, or vice no, versa. The, vice, it's, 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 it doesn't matter. Um, She's buried at Forest Lawn Glendale. She was eulogized by her friend Betty Davis saying to a crowd of loved ones, a queen has left us, the queen of her profession. She will never be replaced. Her contributions to the taste of our town of Hollywood, her elegance as a person, her charms as a woman, never be replaced. There were many movie stars at her funeral, but there was also below the belt studio workers from Paramount there. Fritz Hawks, a Paramount security guard, showed up to pay his respects. He told an LA Times reporter who was there, she designed this coat I have on now. She was the greatest designer in the world and she was quite a girl. In 2003, she was put on the American stamp and her likeness is attributed to oh, Edna yeah. Mode, the fashion designer in The Incredibles, who Brad Bird right. um, stole now her, canceled Brad Bird. all of her things and just made... He groped her image. Brad Bird? Into, yeah, Brad Bird was canceled right no i think john lasseter was john lasseter sorry wait i maybe i don't i don't want to apologize to brad bird because i'm uh possibly canceled brad bird (laughs) if not he is now every man's in the chopping block (laughs) more importantly than all of her accomplishments in her will she split her possessions amongst liz taylor the academy of motion picture arts and sciences several cats and her dalmatian boppo this this is the kind of woman so, Edith had was, and I love it. So Boppo's walking around in the dresses from Vertigo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's wearing all of what's her name in Rear Window? Lisa Montgomery, Lisa Franklin. What is it? Uh, I I can't even. I thought Jonathan Winters was in Rear Window. That's I true. can't tell you. That's true. You're not very smart. There, I there's James Stewart and a cast, and I don't mean the rest of the actors. <laughs> I got so excited because I was reading an Ali Times article about her funeral, and they phrased it in a weird way that made me think that I was reading the list of her pallbearers and it was like Paul Newman, Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, Roddy McDowell. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? Uh, but they were just saying like, there were pallbearers and also these eight actors didn't show up. And he's like, why would you even list the actors who didn't show what up? What is this? Milton Burrell's wedding? <laughs> I'm mean, not wedding funeral. <laughs> it was a wedding between his corpse and the earth, but <laughs> the littlest lady has the world's longest coffin. <laughs> just so all these people could carry it. Yeah. Bury me with all my dresses. You know, it's, it, it's weird because 
I first knew her image from The Incredibles. Sure. But then I learned like, oh, this is based on this lady who did all these costumes. Yeah. So I assumed she was alive in the early 2000s. Right. Around when The Incredibles came out. Because obviously she was in the movie. I saw her. Yeah, yeah. That's not Brad Bird doing the voice. (laughs) But... The canceled. That's why he's canceled. But it, it's crazy to hear that she started at the dawn of movies and yeah, but didn't quite make it to the Incredibles. What a shame! What a shame. That's why we we're all. That's what we were all fighting for this whole time. Um, <laughs> was the Fantastic Four done right? It was all leading to this. <laughs> it's one of those careers that like you just got there at the right time, and you. It, I mean, I always think about like my grandma was born. Wait, what? I forgot what invention it was where she just watched like the, through the span of her life, watched this like one thing that's like, that'll never work. And then it became like a plane or whatever, or, like a phone. <laughs> uh, that's like Edith Head with movies. She was throwing rocks at the white, the yeah. right brothers. <laughs> that's for the skies for birds. Get out of their way. <laughs> the skies for Alfred Hitchcock movies. <laughs> yeah, she she seems like a, a, a this is a phrase that can be applied to very few women in a flattering way, but a tough old broad. Yeah, yeah. She's a, I, I think every woman would is a take tough that as a compliment. Broad. Is a tough old broad. A tough yeah. old broad is the is the how you go super saiyan when you're a lady. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, she's a tough old broad. She was she sounded like she had a lot of gumption and moxie. Yeah, I mean to lie your way into the most successful fashion designing career in movies. <laughs> yeah, and being paid like ten thousand at some point being paid ten thousand dollars a week and to be able to leave it all to Elizabeth Taylor, the Academy, and then your pets. That's how you decide to split your your remain your remaining fortune. Then <laughs> you're doing something pretty good. Give all of my money to my dog, feed my face to my cats. <laughs> and now on to the next one. Oh no. Okay, so now let's I've had enough of your st- it's time to get to my style. I mean, oh you, she, you've God. always been a real Edith Head head. Yeah, Me, I'm Edith Head. The guy I'm about to talk about epitomizes my style. <laughs> Which is flashy cowboy. <laughs> These two people we're talking about, I feel like would have actually been a great couple because they're both yeah, tiny little eccentric fashion designers. And that's all I really want from a fashion designer. Yeah. If they were like tall and startling looking, I'm like, no, yeah, this doesn't work. But know. like sh- kind of short, weird looking people. Yeah, this is good. Make my make my clothes. How do you know how to make pants? You don't have bangs. <laughs> You're not Roy Orbison's sister. <laughs> Jonathan Winters. Um, so it, it's time now for this podcast to get a little X rated. Oh, right. And by X, I mean cross as in cross stitching. Ooh, <laughs> baby. Wow, that is, uh, I think I've said it before, a Reed Richards level stretch. (laughs) (laughs) You mean a cross? (laughs) Stretch much like the lining of my pants. (laughs) Today, I'm here to tell you about a one nudie cone. I'm so excited because I only know him. I know him by sight. I can pull him out of lineup. I know what he's known for, but I don't know anything about his story. His style is very distinguishable and i the the first time i actually heard about him was that something of his we're going to be talking about is in the valley relics museum and the guy was like yeah this is a nudie this is a nudie and i was like uh i'm calling hr on you because yeah yeah this is your this is a quick pro quo and i've been warned about that swap nudies send send nudies that's when a recording manager or Johnny Cash is a recording manager needed a new outfit. Send nudies. Yeah. He, te- he texted it, which was a telegram back then. <laughs> Send nudies. Send nudies stop. Stop. <laughs> stop. Stop. That's the end of the line. Don't stop. Stop. <laughs> Daddy likes stop. 
<laughs> colon, close parentheses, stop. Uh, sometimes when I see the stop in a telegram, I think of a little kid being bullied by your brother and check, stop! <laughs> I can't wait to get home to you. Stop! Stop! <laughs> so, Nudie Cone was born Nutia Kotlirenko You're kidding. on December 15th. Another, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to what he is. Uh, uh-huh. December 15th, 1902 in Kiev, back in what Putin considers the good old days when it was part <laughs> of the Russian Empire and riddled with Jewish pogroms. <laughs> but what's great for Putin's predecessors, the Tsars of Russia, was not good for the Jewish Kotlirenko family. So this is another tiny Jewish fashion designer. Oh, cool. In Los Angeles. Party. I don't know if Edith ever reclaimed her her, her Jewish Jewishness. name. I think she was kind of conservative Christian woman. But you know, oh yeah, that's wait, but 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 did she, uh, we're not we're not talking about Edith Head anymore. No, we're done there. Yeah. Interestingly, this guy also had a sort of switching of of teams. But we'll oh, get really? to that. When Nutia was just two, a pogrom broke out in Kiev where 110 Jewish people were murdered in his town. Wow. But constant discrimination and occasional murder was just a way of life back then for Nutia's parents. His dad, a bootmaker, supposedly making boots for Tsar Nicholas II himself. Oh, great. Uh huh. Uh, which. <laughs> He made them extra lickable for Putin's ancestors. <laughs> um, and his mom was raising and selling geese. You could sell geese? Okay, go ahead. What, what do you... What just, do you I don't know. I, 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 I guess both parts are weird. Uh, why get the milk when you can have the geese for free? In, in Greg's opinion, he loves geese milk. <laughs> he loves... Yeah. Forget the eggs. Uh, give me that yummy, yummy white. <laughs> so there were two essential parts of a little Nutia's upbringing. Three, if you count the pogroms. Yeah. The first was that at age eight, Nutia went to work as a tailor's apprentice. Okay. The second was that his mom, to make extra money, ran the concession stand at the local movie theater. And much like my mom dropping me off to sit at the Dairy Queen my sister worked at while she was working, little Nutia would sit in the theater all day watching the movies while his mom was working. So he would just sit there watching movies. And in between showing Battleship Potemkin for the 400th time, this theater would occasionally get their hands on an American Western movie. And Nutia was transfixed. Me too, bro. (laughs) I remember the first time I saw City Slickers too, Nutia. Uh, He's looking at horses. He's like, those geese are so big. (laughs) Those look like they would produce delicious milk. And then he sees (laughs) he sees one part of it. Oh yeah. Delicious (laughs) milk. No one told you Milton Bro is in this movie. What is this, Edith Head's funeral? (laughs) Uh, So American propaganda movies were way better than Russian ones. (laughs) So at age 11, with tailoring abilities and romanticized notions of America in his head, Nutia's parents sent him and his brother Julius all alone to move to America to escape the anti-Jewish sentiment in Russia to the then less violent anti-Jewish sentiment of America. It's like turning the dial down from like 10 to 6. Yeah. (laughs) But not off, though. This is like a D plus level of anti-Semitism <laughs> compared to that unrefined anti-Semitism of Russia. So these two children started their journey outside of Russia and were quickly arrested and sent back to Kiev. No, really? They tried again and this time it took and they were on a boat for New York City. New York City. When they got to Ellis Island, their name was shortened to Cone and Nutia's first name was misheard and registered as Nudie. 
So now we have an American tale, Nudie Cone. Wow. I thought that was a moniker he might have taken. No, no, no. That no, was... it's just stamped with that. But why would the guy mishear one hard to understand to an American name and be like, oh, so your name's Nudie, the name that we all know and love? Oh, yeah. No, those definitely not overworked Ellis Island workers. Oh, yeah. For sure. Oh, the poor like, Ellis Island. Oh, yeah. You just love authority. <laughs> I love name changes. Um, It's so funny that you're like, why would they do that? Oh, because they were doing that all day, every day. But why would they change it from Nutia? Like, it could be like, oh, you're Nathan. But they misheard like, oh, you're Nudie. All right. That makes sense. Weird day. You you got the weird guy at Alice Island. Yeah. He was a little kooky. That analogy will hold even truer as the story goes. This guy, an American tale, Nudie Cone. Right. They found a place to stay in the glorious new country with family in Brooklyn and settled into a life of abject poverty. Nudie couldn't even afford shoes, so one of his teachers gave him some mismatched shoes they found, and at home, his host family took advantage of his tailoring abilities and made him make them free clothes. Wow. Hey, at least they didn't make fun of him for being Jewish. (laughs) That's all I'm asking. Yeah. You can abuse this child, but don't <laughs> abuse him for being Jewish. He looked at his brother at one point and said, it beats a pogrom. <laughs> as they were both up at 4 a.m. to make new socks for their host family. (laughs) At some point in this stage of his life, he became a runner boy for none other than Mr. Whoopi himself, Eddie Cantor. Wow, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, this is... uh, This story you're about to hear is not only the best story in this whole thing, but Uh a recurring nightmare for you and me also. So one day he got the courage to tell Eddie Cantor that he himself wanted to be a performer (laughs) and that he had actually learned how to play the mandolin. And Eddie Mm. Cantor said, okay, get yourself cleaned up and tomorrow I'm giving you your big break. A classic showbiz story was about to happen. My my teeth are chattering and I can't stop it. A classic showbiz story to us and our experiences in show business. Yeah. So the next night he had Nudie on his show, Eddie Cantor's show, and Eddie Cantor introduced him and Nudie walked out on stage with his mandolin, completely froze in stage fright, didn't play a single note and walked off stage while everybody laughed at him. <laughs> That's like... Nightmare year one. Uh, uh, no, that's th- like th- look where th- all all shame comes from. This one nudie cone event, right? Yeah, this no, this is like there's archetype nightmares, and we don't yeah. know. Like humans are just born knowing them, and yeah, we don't yeah, know yeah. why. This is why we have this nightmare. It manifested from it there. Was so it wasn't a thing before. Yeah, <laughs> what happened to nudie was so mortifying. All humans are now born with that nightmare. <laughs> with the programming now. <laughs> so from here, he decided I'm going to get out of town and. Try Travel the country for a little. Uh huh. That's the only. Oh, he made that decision. That's the only thing you could do. Yeah, we've all had that impulse. Yeah. So he took up odd jobs, shining shoes, and things like that, going around the country. The five foot seven man, a little bit taller than Edith had, became mm-hmm. a boxer for a while, known as Battling Nudie, which could wow. also have been the slogan for ancient Greece. Um, <laughs> supp- <laughs> supposedly, he was connected to Pretty Boy Floyd during this stint of his life also. Oh, wow. Then in 1918, he was paid $5 to deliver a package in Ohio that turns out was filled with cocaine, and he was sent to jail in Kansas for nine months. Whoa! Yeah. Once he was again free to do whatever it was that he was doing, he decided to try his hand out in Hollywood. 
Oscar, as most people who just who got out, out of prison jail <laughs> for cocaine. Yeah, I'm going to go to Hollywood. And that's how we got Brad Bird. Um, <laughs> John Lasseter. He had always loved Westerns. So why not try moving it as West as he can go? And maybe yeah. if he was lucky, recapture some of that magic from the Eddie Cantor show. <laughs> <laughs> the mandolin went on to great fame, though, but Nudie. The, ma- <laughs> the mandolin like shuffled back out on stage after that and said into the microphone, that was awkward. And then played <laughs> like the devil goes down to Georgia level mandolin, playing, which wasn't a mandolin, but uh, yeah, famously uh, uh, not a mandolin. But you know, uh, my brain is just mixing the two up right yeah. now. And I'll uh, take what, it. You've never seen the devil's golden mandolin. <laughs> so supposedly he was an extra in a few silent movies, but his Come main on. income was he opened up a tailoring shop in Hollywood in 1922 with one of his customers being Gloria. Swanson. Oh. He also tried his hand at film editing, which is as close to tailoring as you can get in movie work, but he was not good at it and ended up following a young aspiring starlet he was in love with back home to his second home of New York City. So he New failed in uh, Los Angeles and he's back in New York City. Sure. And the the, the starlet isn't anybody that we know. It, it, no, it's uh, another failure. Sounded a little bit like we're rep. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It was another failure who uh, another it's nameless spreading. failure. Yeah. <laughs> his performance at Eddie Cantor was so bad, <laughs> anyone he fell in love with's career ended. Yeah, it, it, it's a stain that moves across his personal history. <laughs> so he's back in New York City, and then the Depression hit. He decided to start roaming the country once again as a Depression-era hobo until he found himself in a boarding house in Moncato, Minnesota. This was where he met the true love of his life, the blonde bombshell, the daughter of the boarding house's owner, the many and scary named Helen Bobby Barbara Kruger. Oh my God. Claws in Kruger. Meow. <laughs> Say the name again. Helen, Helen Bobby. Bobby is a nickname. Helen Bobby Barbara yeah. Kruger. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You said it. And I, if you asked me to repeat it right after you said it, I would have said Millie Bobby Brown. I know. Any name with Bobby in the middle is yeah. going to be Millie Bobby Brown to me. Yeah. Millie Bobby Brown Voorhees. But. <laughs> <laughs> she felt like her career was floundering, so she added another famous name. That's her name. <laughs> so, Helen Bobby Barbara Kruger, get out of my dreams. Seriously, <laughs> you're killing me. Um, the two wooed each other and were married by 1933. And back in New York City, New York City, in 1934, they moved back to New York City. Okay, New York City. So, this was New York City. So this was when Nudie decided to embrace part of his upbringing full force and opened him not just a tailoring shop, but a clothing shop where he would design and make the clothes. But not just any clothes. Clothes for strippers, burlesque dancers, and sex workers. Three of my favorite occupations. (laughs) Nudies for the Ladies opened in 1934, which is a perfect name for what he's selling. Yeah. Just off of Times Square, also perfect location, and catered specifically to those professions by offering flashy and erotic things like embroidered skirts and G-strings covered in rhinestones. Killer. Which, this is 1934, and to think of a G-string existing in 1934 is uh, earth-rattling. Sure. (laughs) It makes me rethink what I think of 1934. Yeah. Uh, So so now imagine Edith Head... from the Incredibles in her youth was wearing a rhinestone covered G-string because that was just what you did back then. The soldier getting back from fighting World War II grabs the nurse, yeah. kisses her without her consent, and behind them is a store that sells G-strings. It changes my idea of the boys coming yeah. back home. 
carefully cropped that picture. <laughs> Much like the G-strings, carefully cropped. <laughs> so he ran the place with Bobby, Bobby Krueger. But as the 30s went on, burlesque shows started going out of favor and business started drying up. So they switched to being a dry cleaner until Nudie decided once again... The West was calling. So he and Bobby closed up shop and permanently moved back to Los Angeles in 1939. Every time that he moves, it's because somebody's like, hey, were you on that Eddie Cantor show? And he's like, I think it's time to move. <laughs> I think uh, the world's oldest profession has uh, failed. <laughs> the West is calling. <laughs> the West is calling. Yeah, the West <laughs> is calling for sure. Hey. You're the guy with that mandolin, aren't it's you? It's Mr. Mandolin. The mandolin comes in with a big fur coat and two women attached to its arms. Yeah. Getting into a limousine in Times yeah. Square. <laughs> I think it's time to go west. <laughs> so they set up shop, by that I mean their home, in a little bungalow across from Hollywood High School. And then they set up shop, by that I mean a shop, in their garage. It's now the in and out <laughs> Where, yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, those arches were his original design. <laughs> they used to be covered in rhinestones. <laughs> arches. Um, it's a arrow. It's two G-strings, you <laughs> idiot. No, I'm, not the, I'm thinking of the arched palm trees, but yeah. I know. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. in and outs famous. The golden arches of in and out right? <laughs> <laughs> so they start in their garage. Nudie started making clothes to sell. And it wasn't anything fancy, just wool shirts and some pants that he'd sell for $19 each. Not a single G-string to be found. Yeah. G-strings made out of wool. The only G-string is the one on the mandolin. Go ahead. <laughs> They say that you uh, you you relive your trauma. <laughs> you know, we only talk about him making G strings. He also made F strings, E strings, D strings. Yeah, nobody brings those strings up. Those aren't as erotic. <laughs> um, eventually, they moved to a new house on La Brea, and then into the glorious valley, either in North Hollywood or Arlita. But I'm sure at the time it was it was the same place. Right. Yeah. But Nudie kept a loft on Hollywood Boulevard that he would do his tailoring out of. Okay. But then in the mid 40s, the unthinkable happened, and a America was thrown into turmoil. Nudie got a hernia. No! <laughs> How will we survive this? What will we tell our boys overseas? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for Nudie's hernia. <laughs> I, know, I know that was 20 years later, but I can't remember what FDR told the country to cheer them up. Elect me a third time and yeah. don't look at my legs. <laughs> We're not talking about them today. Yeah. Don't mind this wool blanket over my lap yeah it's an original edith head and everyone's <laughs> like oh wow oh wow i didn't know that so he had to have surgery and he had no insurance so he was now broke and on the verge of having to move back to new york city and abandon his beloved west once more which it's funny that it's like oh, i can't afford to live in los angeles i'm gonna go move back to new york city new york city yeah <laughs> um, where they welcome me they give you a free apartment as soon as you get there yeah i know a guy at ellis island he's really wacky i think he, <laughs> think he would let me in yeah he takes letters off my name every time i introduce myself to him though it's kind of weird <laughs> but this time he wasn't going to let that happen he's not going to move back to new york city too many people saw the mandolin show <laughs> he decided he needed to take a big swing to give himself some financial stability rather than just making pants for people on Hollywood Boulevard. Sure. He needed to make clothes for people of note. And more than just that, he needed to make clothes that were distinct. Clothes huh. that had style. Clothes that were absolutely outrageous and borderline ugly, but actually kind of cool. Yeah. So the year is now 1947, and the man Nudie decided to start his new venture with was a not that well-known at the time, but up-and-coming country singer named Tex Williams. Okay. I don't think I know Tex Williams. Oh, you don't know Tex Williams? Uh, he, no. It's more of a name that sounds famous, I think. He was he yeah. killed Sharon Tate. 
I was just about to make the joke. I think he was a Manson member. Yeah. The most famous singer in the Manson group, which Manson was not very happy with. I know Tex Ritter. And that's Ritter. saying a lot in the Manson family. Uh, he had a hit, at like a novelty country hit. Okay. But he, he was kind of, you know, he was one of those early singing cowboy kind of guys. Sure. But Nudie somehow found out where he lived and ran up to him one day while he was mowing his lawn and pitched him an idea, which, to, hey, kids listening, always good advice. Yeah. Track down these movie stars. When they're outside, run up to them on their lawn, grabbing their mail. Yeah, yeah, grabbing their mail with you your run hand up. in your pocket, pointing at mm-hmm. them. Run up to them. Yeah, yeah. Manifesto and sticking out of pocket. <laughs> Make sure you're holding a copy of Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> so he pitched him this idea: if Tex could give him hundred fifty dollars to buy the proper equipment, Nudie would make custom suits for him and his entire band that would be flashy and give them a visual signature that he argued would jumpstart his career. Sure, Tex agreed, but the problem was. Tex Williams was also broke, so he had no money, and he had to auction off one of his horses, and oh now the money was all nudies. Oh my that god. That horse, Mr. Ed. He went <laughs> on to be Mr. Ed. He was the Pete Best of Tex Williams's band. So, Tex Williams and Nudie Cohn, they decide they gotta go find where Rick Rubin's mowing the lawn. <laughs> so both of them go to Rick Rubin, and Rick Rubin's like, this is a great idea, but I'm so broke. So the three of them go... <laughs> it was a real Wizard of Oz situation. <laughs> <laughs> they just can't, Which is just a story of a broke girl picking up broke people along her way home to make money. I know someone who has $5 to help us out, and it's the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I swear this guy's rich, and then they get there, and he's just so... He, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, and he's like eating cat food. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I don't have any money for you either. I'm sorry. Hey, I stole this out of the dumpster fair and square. <laughs> now, Nudie wasn't the person to put country singers in garish suits. Okay. Because this is an image we have of, of mm-hmm. the singing cowboy in these, you know, frills, lace, right? Not lace, but uh, yeah. rhinestones, colors. Em- embroidered. Embroidery. Yeah, flashy colors. So... He wasn't the first one to do this, Nudie. So the the first group to be doing that were the Maddox brothers and Rose. But as we'll soon see, Nudie became the one to make the unholy union between country singers and outrageous suits stick. Right. So, what year was this? Was he pushing for this? This was 1947 or like oh. late late 40s. A little a little earlier than I thought, but maybe he got successful at the at the prime of what like the late 60s, mid 60s, 70s. This is the Edith Head syndrome, where you think it's one era, but it actually spanned several eras. Right, okay. So now everybody was really excited. Nudie was embarking on a new strain of his career, and Tex was hopefully about to do the same, and they had the money. Because of this, when they got together to take the band's measurements, it turned into a party where everybody got drunk, so all the clothes came out the wrong sizes, and Nudie had to get more money and do it all over again. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I think I know where Roy Rogers rides his bike. (laughs) Maybe party after the measurements. I don't know. Maybe I'm a square. You're going to tell a cowboy when to party? You're going to tell a cowboy when to measure? Nobody tells a cowboy when to party. <laughs> but when he got the sizes right, it was a big hit. And Texas career started to take off. And Nudie thought, well, if that's the style people want, then I'm going to give it to them in spades. Spade Cooley. His philosophy in fashion became, it's better to be looked over than to be overlooked. Right. Yeah. Which I is a, I, like just doing the research on on Nudie Cone. I'm like, yeah, I, I need to. I need to buy cowboy. I need to buy cowboy boots that are like covered in snake eyes. You can't. Here's the thing with that. You can't. That's funny. 
you can't just buy cowboy boots. It has to be the whole thing. I know. You can't just like wear dress like you're a member of the Strokes or whatever, <laughs> like you, right, and then like have cowboy right. boots. You yeah. know, I, for many years, I've been slowly gathering what I need to have a good Zorro costume for Halloween. Yeah. This is our October episode, so I can say this. Yes. So I was thinking, well, I don't have black boots and I need black boots. I should just get black cowboy boots. And then I'm like, well, if I get black cowboy boots, I got to get a... <laughs> gotta, I got to get a whole I, suit. I got to get a crocodile skin suit uh, <laughs> uh zorro the country singer it was zorro bobby gentry glenn campbell yeah zorro jr yeah zorro jr zorro williams jr <laughs> um tex-mex zorro <laughs> so his reasoning was for his pa- his fashion his passion for fashion was my impression of an entertainer is he should always wear a flashy outfit to be fair to the public he shouldn't be wearing a sport coat like the people in the audience the costume is the first impression and it should be flashy yeah i agree which is something we've all like whenever we've done a live a live thing we've always been like well what are you wearing yeah because we we all we want to uh we let's just Let's just say it, we want to dominate the audience, and it's and it starts with a leather suit. Yeah, it starts with the Eddie Murphy red leather suit. That's how the yeah. audience will differentiate who the talent is and who is a plebe off the streets and nobody. So after Texas suits started catching people's eyes, two big names came to him next, looking to make a similar impression. Gene Autry and Roy Rogers. Wow, original singing cowboys. So yeah, these are like these are I mean, as far as singing cowboys go, these are big names. And these are the the singing cowboys, yeah. capital S capital C. Nobody sang harder, nobody cowboyed harder. Cowboyed harder than yeah. these two. So specifically Roy Rogers, who wanted one of Nudie's suits because he was performing at Madison Square Garden and he wanted to wear something that even a kid sitting in the nosebleed seats would be able to see. Yeah. So That's great. what he wanted was fringe covered in rhinestones, nudie specialty. Uh-huh. And this look became Roy Rogers signature look that he's remembered by. So like the, you know, it's almost, it's like trying to describe a Roy Orbison. It's, oh yeah. Yeah. It's like trying to describe Jonathan Winters, Roy Orbison, <laughs> famous albinos. Is what <laughs> famous saying. albinos of history. You know, it's like trying to describe something that we, you just know it as, you know, yeah, like yeah. the look of Roy Rogers was made by nudie. Right. So from here, between both these guys, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry's TV shows, other singing cowboys and wannabe singing cowboys saw these, what became known as nudie suits on TV and wanted some of their own. So this combined with nudie and Bobby hanging out at the honky tonks around the valley, not least of all the Palomino. I was about to bring that up. Yeah. And making friends with country musicians all over town, put nudie cone as the guy for cowboy fashion. Um, what year was this that uh, they came calling for him? This was like the the early 50s at this point. Okay, that also makes sense. <laughs> when America just couldn't get enough singing cowboys. No, we won the war. We wanted to sing. That's, what we fight, that's why we fight yeah. boys. We didn't climb the Reichstag and plant a singing <laughs> cowboy on top for nothing. When we got to the Eagle's Nest and we destroyed Hitler's bunker, we yeah. were singing the Cowboys song. Who was there? Gene Autry. Gene Autry. When they, Lasso. When those boys in blue or whatever they wore planted yeah. the flag on Iwo Jima, who was with them? Tex Williams. <laughs> Spade Cooley. This is like uh, the the picture of the people in the diner and it's Marilyn Monroe and James Dean, <laughs> but it's the, fla- the flag of Iwo Jima picture and it's, it's Gene Autry, Roy Rogers. It's Nuremberg. It's time to hang the Nazis, and a lasso comes over the thing, and it's <laughs> the last thing Goebbels heard was "Hi ho, silver." <laughs> the neighing of silver as it's about to run away. You keep bringing up Spade Cooley because it's a cool name to say, but you it know that cool. he uh, he was murdered uh, uh, by a shovel. 
as I thought, because his name's Spade. Oh, but what were you going to say? That's funny. <laughs> you, sh- you should look into what crimes he might have committed because they're oh, pretty really? awful. Okay. Oh, good he was murdered then. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> you know what? Good for the murderer. And you know who killed him? Nudie Cone. <laughs> Continue. Sorry. So the significance of this shift in cowboy fashion, it can't be overstated because it completely changed the mythos of the cowboy of the old American West from the tough guy in a duster who can light a match on a horse yeah. to Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Back to the, that's very funny. Uh, yeah, that that was something that it took me a long time to understand. But it's so I know confusing. It's, it's very confusing. It, like it, There's like what cowboys look like and then there's what we imagine cowboys look like and it's because of nudie coat. Like mm-hmm. this fake image of what a cowboy was is because of this five foot seven Jewish man from Kia. Yeah, of all of my understanding of real like cowboy Western Americana and right. then well, like the, the, thinking of the fictionalized Billy the Kid wearing rhinestones in the shape of a rattlesnake. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I thought the whole thing about being a cowboy was like being like I'm just like a humble little farmer. And then for them to come out with yeah rhinestones with like a bright pink thing with embroidery everywhere, and they're like I'm a humble little cowboy. But look at this suit. Uh, but. But eventually, I'm like, oh, no, I, I, it turns out I actually really like that. Yeah. So it turned our image of cowboys into men who sang and wore brightly colored fringe and rhinestones. So he completely yeah. reworked one aspect of the iconography of America. Like he, yeah. he rec- again, like him, his failure at the Eddie Cantor thing, archetyping the nightmare to all of us. He retconned America's memory of cowboys as looking yeah. like Gene Autry. <laughs> That's what he took from us. We took a little from him. He took a lot from us. Um <laughs> I want him to have like win an award and go on like a lifetime achievement award and he's on stage <laughs> to grab it and then someone's like wait 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 uh, there's a hush you're not the guy from the Eddie Cantor thing right <laughs> and I think I moved to Japan this time what's further west than west <laughs> He went so far west, he went east. Korea. Yeah. <laughs> At that same ceremony, they were giving the mandolin a lifetime achievement award. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real honor to play this G-string in front of everybody. <laughs> As his business got bigger, he felt unprofessional running it out of his garage and a loft in Hollywood. So by 1949, going back a little bit, he had opened yeah. up an actual storefront at 11000 Victory Boulevard in North Hollywood wow. called Nudies of Hollywood. Wow. Do you know what there is there now? Um, I think it's a car rental place, but I passed oh, by cool. this. Inter- it's a it's across the street from a Target and a restaurant called the Crispy Pork Gang. <laughs> Oh, okay. Do you get the gut jumped in to get a meal or what? <laughs> you get to the chicharrones knocked out of you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's right off of I think Lancashire. But yeah, okay. I think it's just a car a car place. But okay, Bobby helped sew stuff in these early days and was also the inspiration for their logo. When one night things are getting steamy again. X-rated, uh-huh. you know, cross-stitching. Yeah, yeah, cross-stitching, yeah, got it. One night, Bobby came into their bedroom wearing nothing but a holster, boots, and a cowboy hat. Oh, boy. And she said something like, what are you going to... Yeah, she said something like, uh, um, I spilled chili all over my pants. It, it, she said something like, when are you going to make the rest of this suit, big boy, or something? Yeah, yeah, something something sexy, but not that. Yeah, yeah and then he it. said, I've got it, rhinestones, and he, he <laughs> ran out the room. My dear boy, yeah. <laughs> he ran, I wait till Tex William hears about this. <laughs> so their logo was a topless cowgirl for until for oh. a while, until 19... Like, like nipples and everything. Like, you, you could see... Yeah, full. Everything, yeah. Greg. You could J to it, yeah. <laughs> 
this is why his clothes weren't allowed in anywhere around <laughs> schools. Um, so to, it was the logo until 1963 when Nudie converted to Christianity and suddenly Cowgirls learned shame and he put a skirt, put a skirt and a top on her. Oh, he had to change his name too. Yeah. To cl- the clothes cone. Yeah. Clothes cone. <laughs> Burka cone. Yeah. Two jackets on a hot summer day cone. <laughs> But 1963 was the same year that they outgrew even that store in North Hollywood and moved to 5015 Lankersham and renamed themselves to Nudie's Rodeo Tailors. 5015 Lankersham is, I think, across the street or diagonally across the street from the world's famous Ha Ha Club. Oh my God, really? Yeah. World's famous Ha Ha Club. World famous Ha Ha Club. You go to Russia and you say Ha Ha Club, they're like Lankersham Boulevard. And yeah. You're like, yeah. You know where it's at. <laughs> So now they're Nudie's Rodeo Tailors. And this was the store that was almost as legendary amongst a specific community as the Palomino Club was just a few miles away. Right. So out front, it had a life-size plastic horse. And on the roof were two bucking Broncos. So you knew what you were getting into. Oh, yeah. There's no... You're not going to go in there... I'm no. looking for something like school uniforms for my kid. Like that's uh-huh. no, you know. <laughs> when you come in here, you greet me with a yeehaw. Yeah, uh, there's only one kid I dressed. And that's Fifle when he went west. <laughs> I was gonna say Billy the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the only bills we take here are buffalo. <laughs> the only holidays we take are dog holidays. Dog hol- the only holidays we take off are dog holidays. Yeah, and they are that is legally binding. <laughs> <laughs> so it was always a party in there in this store with drinking involved and jam sessions would break out all the time amongst the musicians and ever present was Nudie's world famous lima bean soup. <laughs> the most cowboy soup we can think of. <laughs> the most Ukrainian cowboy yeah. soup. I can <laughs> What a better thing to eat around a bunch of custom-made clothing than lima bean soup. (laughs) There were even a few radio shows that were broadcast out of the store. And the musicians that were counted among his list of clients were anybody who was anybody in the world of country and then eventually beyond. You had your classic singing cowboys like the cancelled Spade Cooley. Uh Cancelled in my mind uh, since you told me. (laughs) Porter Wagoner. Okay. Lefty Frizzle. Oh, I like Lefty Frizzle. Hank Williams. Oh, the original Daddy Hank Williams? The original Hank Williams. Wow. Scumbag himself. We do like him, though. (laughs) Not as bad as his son, but... um... Twice as bad as his grandson. Um, (laughs) No idea about any of the progeny of Hank Williams, but I like Uh, Hank Williams a lot. You know, because I was actually... I was talking with Carl Tart about Nudie, because this is right up Carl Tart's alley. And uh, he... He buys hats, yeah. He buys hats. And he told me what Hank Williams did was he wrote a rebuttal song to Colin Kaepernick taking a knee... To, uh, oh, during the national anthem and it was called really? like it was called like something like if you're gonna oh it's called take a knee take a hike that's what it's wow. called yeah, so that's the legacy of the williams name wow anyway shame yeah so <laughs> hank williams though the the better daddy. one daddy yeah daddy he williams. designed a classic white suit covered in musical notes for him which you oh, might have right. seen in old pictures it's pretty cool then you had a different sort of country singer with johnny cash he made clothes for him then at, they were all uh, more subdued, but still uh, in a little bit of the nudie style. It's weird to think that Hank Williams was the the more flashy one, and even though he is like closer to being right. a rural cowboy and Johnny Cash in movies and Columbo episodes, like die it down a little bit. Dial it down. (laughs) I thought you were supposed to be sad. (laughs) Then as country music itself started to change, the new guards still kept coming to nudie for their clothes because that was just the look of a country singer. 
people like Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, and Tammy Wynette. Then you had the people who bridged the gap from country to rock and roll slash popular music like Linda Ronstadt and Glenn Campbell, who it is said wrote Rhinestone Cowboy about Nudie Cone. Whoa, really? His yeah. biggest hit? Mm-hmm. That's great. Then, of course, there was Graham Parsons, whose look mm-hmm. he helped develop and who was like a son to Nudie. Wow, really? He made for him his suit that was, it was embroidered with pill capsules and marijuana leaves. I don't know if you've right. seen that. I've seen that one, yeah. Of course. I mean, what else Why would he would... be wearing? <laughs> yeah. No, that's Graham Parsons' brand. Yeah. Too. Mr. Joshua Tree himself. So much so that he never left Joshua Tree. Of course, <laughs> he was wearing that. So then he had the more rock and roll slash pop customers. Of course, you had Mike Nesmith. Right. David Ca- himself. David Cassidy. Right. And Cherry Garcia himself. Jerry Garcia. <laughs> Aretha Franklin. Sonny and Cher. Oh. Lou Rawls. Dean Martin. John Lennon. Jimi Hendrix. Robert Plant. And Keith Richards, who bought boots covered in rubies. Uh, Ruby Boot Day. Uh, a it's little. Almost so close. That's so he, close. That's when he picked it up. It's uh, yeah. That Ruby Nudie boot calls day. him. Uh, you know, it's Ruby Boot Day <laughs> again. This is these are living with your cat alone for a week. That's like jokes. what's the the car sale that finds a way to squeeze Armageddon in Carmageddon. Carmageddon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the that's that. Go ahead. So a little later, he had ZZ Top and David Lee Roth. Elton John wore a nudie suit for the cover of the single of Rocket Man. Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe his most famous creation was for the Slayer of Imhotep himself. Elvis. Oh yes. That's wait. The Wh- which one are you thinking of? Not white. not the white one. No 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 no. Oh, Although okay. maybe he maybe that might have been. I'm not sure. But Elvis okay. commissioned Nudie to make the gold lame suit that is on the cardboard cutouts oh, everywhere. Oh my god. Yeah, okay, that, I do know that one. So that golden uh, um, suit is that like it's like million fifty records. million Elvis fans can't be wrong. Yeah, or that's the yeah, one. That's the one the on one the cover of that. That that yeah. was made by Nudie Cone. Oh wow, I love that. Well, okay, so this was the most expensive suit Nudie ever sold. He charged him ten thousand dollars. When in reality, Nudie is not Rumpelstiltskin, and this suit is not made out of real gold, and it costs fifty dollars to make. Oh, and he sold it to him for ten thousand dollars. All profit. <laughs> Elvis could afford it. That's I, the, was, I mean, I'm sure the colonel, which I think he was friends with the colonel. I'm sure he was like, just charge him ten thousand dollars. Make yeah, it out of I, make it out of burlap. He's not going to know. So then there was the crossover into the Hollywood crowd, and he also was making clothes for Hollywood productions. He did all of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans' clothes for their Republic Studios movies. Uh huh. He did Robert Redford's costume in The Electric Horseman. Okay. Which I had never heard of, but Me when you look at a screenshot, you know it's a nudie. That's a nudie. Suit. Yeah. I'm looking at a nudie. Yeah. Look up look up nudie movies right now. Um, to specify, just put nudie cutie into like a Google image search. <laughs> and then after that, put patootie also. <laughs> nudie cutie patootie movie. <laughs> so now, okay, now here's two just for you, Greg, in case okay. you, I didn't win you over with the electric horseman. He did the costumes for the movie, not the woman, the movie head oh okay the monkeys okay. movie written by jack we, nicholson which we saw, we together, saw together which is yeah. really good yeah it was fantastic way better than a, a monkey movies has any business being you're breaking march simpson's heart right now but that's fine <laughs> it's okay i'll let you go on and that okay so here's the second thing he did the hats and shirts for the andy griffith show oh really yeah, that was really exciting that's, to learn that's pretty cool so then goober's outfit yeah. totally nudie goober's yeah. hat <laughs> can't you tell it's a nudie that jug hat that ripped up jug head hat <laughs> 
Yeah. So then just on a day-to-day level, people who were wearing his clothes were the eternal actor, Ronald Reagan, Sylvester Stallone, Charlton Heston, Goldie Hawn, Tom Brokaw. He became friends with Tony Curtis and they would talk to each other in Yiddish in the store because like, who else are they going to talk in Yiddish? Yeah. He also, pretty cool. he also became friends with the almost socialist Palmdale boy, Marion John Wayne. Marion? <laughs> Marion John Wayne. So Nudie would follow John Wayne into the changing room because, as he said, I just want to know what kind of underwear he wears. <laughs> My God, was he Lucy Ricardo? Would you just step into this uh, wet changing room? The the floor is really wet. (laughs) And just to step away for a second from the glitz and glamour of who was wearing the clothes, the glitz coming off of these clothes were the real story. If we haven't fully explained what a nudie suit is, they were brightly colored and they were bold with their embroideries and liberal use of rhinestones. But what was really so special about them was that they were tailor-made both literally and figuratively to you. Wow. It could have your initials stitched on there, yes, but it would also have your entire image or your personality stitched into it. Yeah. That's the kind of custom stuff that I oh, really like. Absolutely. It's not just like, oh yeah, it's it's 32 by 30. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I got, yeah, I got, you that, have no, I got that itty bitty waist. <laughs> oh yeah, you have no neck, so I have to like build down the shoulder pads or whatever. Right. It's like, it's, oh you, oh you like were good at math in the fourth grade. Yeah, I'll, I'll incorporate that. Oh, so your body fits into the suit that David Byrd wore. Okay. Um, so your outfit is not just the suit he was wearing; it's also David Byrne wearing it. Your suit is David Byrne wearing the big suit. It's the only way it'll fit onto you. <laughs> so it wasn't just like those, but you know, it it was a suit for you. It could be a scene yeah. from one of your songs, like a guy sitting in jail or a train. Uh-huh. I saw one that had Humpty Dumpty embroidered on oh, it. Oh, I love that. Or it could just be what embodied you. It could be a deck yeah. of cards. It could be horseshoes. One of them had piping on the coat pockets that looked like this singer's smile. Like he was wow. known for this like kind of crooked grin and the piping on his shirt pockets looked exactly like that. Oh, I love that. Like I said, there was the musical notes on Hank Williams's suit and the drugs all over Graham Parsons suit. Uh-huh. Each suit was a wearable work of art and you could rest assured knowing it was definitely one of a kind. That's that's incredible it, work. It's really exciting. But by the heyday of nudie suits, it wasn't just nudie sitting there sewing things. There was a dedicated tailor there named Jaime Castaneda. There were the embroiderers Viola Gray and Rose Clements. The head designer eventually became a guy named Manuel Cuevas, who went on to open his own store and carry on the style to become a legend in his own right. This guy, Manuel Cuevas, brought Mexican and indigenous elements to the designs and I believe worked with Edith Head for a while. Oh, really? I'm surprised you didn't know that, huh? Interesting. <laughs> Wait, I guess you didn't really do research. Huh? <laughs> I wonder how much of you have made up. I guess I'll just do research for everybody. <laughs> there were dedicated boot makers in there. There were leather workers, aka leather daddies, but the store <laughs> wasn't, so it was a full staff. This wasn't just right. Moody's work. It was a full staff sure. of people. But the store wasn't just for the rich and cowboys. Nudie said you don't have to have cows to be a cowboy. You could buy much less involved suits at the shop for about $100, which is... Okay. You know, That's very reasonable of him. It's not going to have like cactus all over it, but it's going to be a nice tailor-made suit. Yeah. They also published the Western-style roundup catalogs to promote what they had in the store. The catalogs would begin with an introduction from Nudie himself saying, Dear friends, I am Nudie, the tailor. And my custom is fine clothing for countless Western stars, Sunday riders, dudes, and honest-to-goodness wranglers, cowpokes, and rodeo folks. This sounds like it should be over a loudspeaker. With, like, slow guitar picking. At, what's the hillpilly part of Disneyland? The Country Bear Jamboree. 
the it sounds like it should be played overhead at the count uh, the country bear jamboree. <laughs> Hi, folks. I'm a talking bear. Yeah, I'm Big L. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, folks. I'm a racist leftover character <laughs> from Songas of the South. <laughs> And all shucks to that. <laughs> all shucks to those allegations. I'm, you know, I'm not going to let you cancel me like you did Spade Cooley. <laughs> so they also did embroidery for horses in the store. Like you could get like, like the, I've seen the saddles and things. It's like yeah. these horses are wearing nicer clothes than I will ever wear. They measure horses, don't they? <laughs> That's what a lot of people asked when they came in. <laughs> and Nudie himself, of course, was as hard to miss as his clothes, which he was always wearing, by the way. Sure. In my head, I know what he looks like, but right now you talking about him, I, I try to flash in my head like someone's spotting him and I just saw Cal Worthington. Go ahead. Oh, he. Yes, I could see people like if if you had never seen Nudie Cone, you would assume he was Cal Worthington. He like Cal Worthington, yeah. Uh, who, who fought in a duel at, at uh, Sundown one time. Yeah, they they went High noon. They one time walked through the same door at the same time and they they freaky friday so they are the same person. Um he was a big personality and you knew whenever Nudie was in yeah. the room. He became a celebrity in his own right and was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Oh my. But he recorded his own album in 1974 called Nudie and His Mandolin. Oh no. He's and it was 12 tracks of silence. No. <laughs> What it only took him forty years to get the courage yeah. to do it again, and becoming the most like fashionable Western designer for him to even be bold enough. <laughs> okay, so his absolutely ridiculous car. Yes, a car dealer named Art Miller gave a car to Nudie to decorate as he deemed fit as a way to drum up publicity for his dealership, and this sparked an obsession that got crazier and crazier and spread out over eighteen different cars that he did the following two. Okay. Basically think a Cadillac if it got put in the machine from the fly with a cowboy riding a bull, like with his guns drawn. <laughs> he mounted steer horns on the front of them. Silver dollars were inlaid all along the inside panels. And then the guns. The door handles were six shooters. The emergency brake and turn signal were derringers. The stick shift was also a gun that you had to pull the trigger to shift the gears. <laughs> then there were rifles mounted on the sides just for the hell of it. Fantastic. In all, each car had about 14 guns attached to it. And then to top things off, there was often a little horse saddle in between the seats for kids to ride on. A situation I would want my child in less I cannot think of. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. a more dangerous car to be driving. If you hit the horn, it just says Second Amendment real loud. <laughs> and that's how you know that you were in his way. Second Amendment, Second Amendment. <laughs> Pry it out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> so he had to get a special letter from the LAPD that this car was allowed on the road. Oh my God. This driving weapon is legal and allowed to be on the road. An outrageous thing to see. Like yeah. like a more dangerous Jay Leno on the road. <laughs> like I said, 18 of these cars were made. Usually they were Pontiac Bonnevilles or Cadillacs. Today, we only know the location of nine of these, one of which is in the Valley Relics Museum, which we got to see. And it's startling when you see it up close, how cool it is. It's outrageous. I didn't even know much about Nudie when I saw it. I just knew that he was like a fashion cowboy guy. But when I saw him, I'm like, oh, I think I whoever this guy is, I think I, I understand this man. I understand this man. And I think I like him a lot. <laughs> so some of these cars he had made for himself, some he designed for other people like Benny Binion of Binion's Casino in Las Vegas. Oh, OK. Yeah. He made one for him. But Nudie would drive this all around town. Here's another joke, like a deactivated gun-toting Jay Leno, and he'd cruise, 
he'd cruise over to the Roxy or the Whiskey or the Rainbow Room to try to draw wow. in new customers. Wow. He was a He's like the guy in uh Psycho that she robs all the money from, but like a cool one, a cool version of that guy yeah. that she steals the money from. <laughs> he, this guy doesn't deserve to be robbed. <laughs> so he he was a ham for sure, but he was also a caring guy. He would forgive the debt of people who were struggling and couldn't pay him back. He'd bail his friends out of jail. He'd drive to poorer neighborhoods and pass out cash with a sticker of his face on them and would tell people, when you're sick of looking at me, just rip it off and spend it. Cool. So, That's very nice of him. So he never really lost touch with the pretty rough past that he had come from. He would also sometimes purposely wear mismatched boots to keep him grounded to the days when he couldn't even afford matching shoes. Wow. And uh, just to keep himself humble, he would go to open mics and never rem- and j- just to hear people <laughs> laughing, not with him, but at him. At him. Purposely at him. <laughs> and the mandolin came out like, okay, that's for Nudie Cohen, everybody. Let's keep it going. <laughs> that's for Nutia. What's your name? Nicola? Cola? Cola? Coca-Cola, Nudia yeah, Coca-Cola. Yeah, Nudie Pootie Patootie, whatever. <laughs> and more than one person has made the connection that his whole famous Nudie design style is very similar to the traditional folk clothing patterns of his home country of Ukraine. So, oh, wow, that's so interesting. So it's, 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 it is really interesting that this, icon, what became the iconic American cowboy look is actually pretty much based in traditional Ukrainian clothing. Yeah, that's very interesting. So Nudie lived to be 81, dying on May 9th, 1984 in my beloved Burbank. His eulogy was given by Dale Evans, who is a woman. Yeah. When he died, you could just faintly hear the sound of rhinestones knocking. If you, if you listen closely, you can hear the sound of rhinestones knocking on the wind. And that's when you know a nudie gets his wings. A nudie. <laughs> they had a 20 good, 21 uh, salute. <laughs> a 21 rawhide salute. <laughs> so the store was run for a while by Bobby and their daughter, uh-huh. Barbara, who was married to Cuevas for a while. But in 1994, Nudie's Rodeo Tailors was closed for good. Oh, their sucks. granddaughter, who changed her last name to Nudie and wrote a book about him, which I have right here, oh, cool. opened up a Nudie's coffee shop in Valley Village for a while, but that's gone too. Oh, There is, however, Nudie's Honky Tonk in Nashville that has, you guessed it, the longest bar in Nashville, in, ah. <laughs> inlaid with 10,000 silver dollars. So now we Look know how long long it is it's ten thousand silver dollars long that's how they measure stuff in nashville yeah <laughs> how many silver dollar how many uh, how many rfk heads is this is that rfk or jfk on the silver dollar i don't think it's rfk um i don't uh, i don't think he quite got to the status of being on currency oh excuse me oh i didn't know he got it's on probably Ted. he got on sirhan sirhan's currency okay <laughs> if you know what i mean <laughs> but the nudie legacy still lives on. There are a lot of modern musicians and performers of all genres who have either hunted down original nudie suits to wear on stage or have gotten clothes designed to imitate the nudie style. Sure. Mike Mills of REM, Beck, Jeff Tweedy, Kesha, Post Malone, Lil Nas X, and even Trixie Mattel. Mm-hmm. The clo- Trixie Mattel is very nudie. I yeah. can see that. Yeah. The clothes are also recognized for their importance with nudies being in the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and of course, our beloved Autry Museum has some nudies right. on display. And if you see me there, I will be another nudie on display. <laughs> Looking for the nudies. Hi, Daniel Zafrin. Here for the nudies? <laughs> Try to kick me out. Um, I'm greased up. You can't catch me. <laughs> They've even gone into the afterlife when Roy Rogers was buried in his nudie suit. Whoa, was he really? So if you've heard all this and thought, hey, this sounds like my style, all you need to do is dig up Roy Rogers' grave. Free nudies, everybody. <laughs> 
<laughs> for the price of two shovels. <laughs> for the price of two shovels and your soul. <laughs> That's great. I didn't know. I'm a, I'm a nudie expert now. I'm an I'm an expert on nudes. Also, another uh, yeah. I'm gonna go after this. I'm I will be googling nudes. I will be googling nudies. Expert nudes. Yeah, expert nudes. Yeah, nudes for all. But yeah, and also a big valley presence. This guy. I, I've managed to sneak a another valley thing into the show. It's always unfortunate when you do. Uh, he has. Th- there's a Madman Months thing about nudie. His, hearing you he, say that, he all. very much crafted an image. And he used that to his advantage. Yeah, and that's good. I mean, that's totally the Los hey, Angeles like trope. At least basically. he's not as bad as John Lasseter or or maybe Brad Bird and maybe maybe Spade Brad Cooley. Bird. Uh, Spade Cooley is, I guarantee, a lot worse. <laughs> you should probably read what he did, and we'll cover it one day. I think it happened in Palmdale. It did happen in Palmdale, but uh, I'm pretty. Yeah, I think it, unless it was. Bakers? No, it was Palmdale. It was Palmdale. Palmdale. Uh, anyways, uh, not enough about Spade Cooley and you doing research on Spade Cooley this whole time and me telling you. He's <laughs> Which, canceled. by the way, because um, they have the Crystal Buck Owens Crystal Palace up there, I think they also have a nudie car mounted above the bar in the Crystal Palace. Really? Yeah. Like the wow. like the car at City Walk that crashed into. The- oh, the crash of the thing. Yeah, <laughs> we're supposed to be like, oh, it's cute that King Kong was drunk driving, um, <laughs> or whatever we're supposed to believe. I've always. This isn't the time to talk about it, but I know that there's some storyline between all the crazy decorations at City Walk, and I want to know what it is. And drunk driving King Kong is the best explanation I've heard so far. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about it. So that's just a few costume fashion designers for your month of October. A nudie suit is pr- a pretty good Halloween costume. I think it is. Unless you can get your hands on like a Grace Kelly in Rear Window, a Kim Novak from Vertigo. Yeah. If you can't get your hands on one of those classic Hollywood dresses, go go nudie. Yeah, or Edith Head is also a good Halloween costume. Yeah, that's a, herself. I absolutely agree. Uh, dress up. People are going to call you Edna Mode. You have to correct them. Do what Edith Head would did. Slap them. Call. Th- and the, I don't know who the head of Paramount you was. You fool! Don't you see? My glasses are blue tinted. <laughs> that's what I imagine she sounds like. Uh, me too yeah so before we get to our listener question sure we've got a pre-listener question plug oh yes hit me with it i think it's time for you to send us in new listener questions yes that would be great we want new things to answer so if you send it into lameeklypodcast.com there's a contact page there or la.meekly at gmail.com or on Instagram, LA underscore Meekly, you can send us because we got we want to answer more things for you and don't make them too difficult don't make me go down to the archives to answer these. I bet you're thinking like, oh, they've been out for 10 years now. I bet they've gotten every question humanly possible. No, we've got like nine questions. And we've just been circulating them over and yeah. over again because you don't remember. We did research. Famously, LA Meekly listeners have a nine-month attention uh, memory span. Mm-hmm. So we've yeah. just been answering the same nine questions. Yeah, every eight and a half months, we have to remind Emilio who we are. And then we get a little bit more yeah. juice out of that. Yeah, We're, That's why if you'll look, I mean, you might not even remember this because of your famously bad memories, but if you all look up on your wall, you have pictures of the both of us with our names under us so you remember yeah. who we are. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's yeah, quite yeah. sad. We, tr- we treat you like your memento. Um, <laughs> a movie I saw one time, yeah. <laughs> so now it's time for the listener question. In, Usually in I, question. I get briefed this. But I, this I, this was one that, that I... This is the snake in my boot. Go ahead. 
This one didn't uh, there. There's barely an answer for this, but I found uh-huh. a little bit of something. Okay. So this is from our old pal, Eric Sheslow. Oh, hey, Eric. You can look at, at his art, which is very great. Fantastic. Some of it's for C-Sold designs that are at the uh, LEPL Central store. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're great okay. designs. He showed me a sketch of what he was doing. It's, yeah, go out there. Hey, Follow him and buy his stuff. If you send in your listener question, we'll promote whatever the hell you're doing, too. You could be spayed mm. coolie. You, <laughs> you could murder your whole family. We'll help you promote it. <laughs> So his question, what's the deal with the weekend ATV slash motorbike gang on the Sunset Strip? They go through red lights and narrowly dodge other drivers and pedestrians and drive even more entitled and reckless than the usual privileged nuts who tear through the area Uh between West LA and Beverly Hills. I went undercover in this gang. Wait, first two things. Uh, Did he want you to read it like Seinfeld? Because it starts that way. Second thing, um, (laughs) if you go to Erewhon, you have to buy privileged nuts. Go ahead. (laughs) Any other? I, I want 10 more jokes about this question on my desk by my, <laughs> my son. Up. So I found some articles documenting what he's talking about, but there's not really anything to know about them. It's not like we're the, we're the wreak havoc on Sunset Boulevard, gang. We're the privileged nets. We're the heckers. <laughs> and we're here to hex yeah, things up. We're hex angels. <laughs> um, but they seem to just be an offspring of all the like street takeover people who do these ridiculous, dangerous things because people watch the videos on YouTube and Instagram. So in the end, we're part of the problem by talking about it, which is what they sure. want. But yeah, that that's it's just like, it's not like a particular group. It's just people who are kind of like, Let's go be annoying. And yeah, people will post about it. And then it has people like me, you, and Chaz wondering if what what warrior gangs is this? Yeah. What gang from the movie The Warriors are we having to deal with? Is this a baseball one or a motorcycle one? <laughs> are these the ones that dress up like mimes? Uh, <laughs> we're, we're trying to put our understanding of the universe yeah. into them. Which our understanding of the universe is the warriors, and yeah, but the warriors. we can't put these people in a box. They're just no, annoying, and they would just ride out of it. The box has got to be made of metal, <laughs> and they can do cool tricks in it. Yeah, they'll they'll do wheelies or whatever. Yeah, it's just kind of the West Hollywood version of like a full street takeover and doing yeah donuts in the in an intersection. Yeah, if you meet if you ever meet anyone who thinks that's cool, you could just unmeet them. That's all. <laughs> that's the only way to deal with this. But Greg. It's an ATV. Greg, it's a motorcycle gang taking over a, a street with people filming it. What don't you yeah. get about that being cool? Well, old ladies who are already scared to be driving are just trying to get their groceries home. Mm-hmm, yeah. Me at a red light or at a green light and they stop me and I have to wait three green lights that I as my legal right to go. And they're like, no, bro. <laughs> no, they're totally cool. You're right. We got to get back to Palmdale. The Crystal Palace is calling. <laughs> so uh, that's our October episode, everybody. Have a spooky Halloween. I'll yeah. see you hopefully at Bob Baker soon. Oh, yeah. You're going to see the show. Well, yeah. Greg can go it. there and spread his COVID to everybody. Yeah, that's what I do. Uh, we hope I'm all spreading. of you don't get COVID. I hope that none of you get COVID who are listening to yeah. this. And if you listen to another podcast, it might happen to you. Yeah. if you li- There are other LA history podcasts out there. If you listen to them, you will get COVID. <laughs> so, you know, you're free to do whatever you want. But I guess if you you love COVID, if you listen yeah. to them. So. If you're looking to get 10 days off, sure. Yeah. I mean, your choice. So yeah, enjoy enjoy the spooky month. Um, we might have some music for you in a couple of weeks. Uh, do we some might. Halloween things. And that's been yet another episode of LA Meekly. Correctly identifying Jonathan Winters since 2013. That's almost 10 years ago. I don't know. Uh, it's, not, it's not Brad Bird. It's, He's not John Lasseter. 
He's not Spade Cooley. He's not Edgar Winters. He's not Edgar Winters. He's not, he's not Roy Orbison. He's not Roy Orbison. He's not, it's Jonathan Winters. It's, it's Jonathan Winters, a previous generation's Robin Williams. <laughs> you might remember him from the Dick Cavett show. You might remember Dick Cavett from Beetlejuice. <laughs> you might remember Beetlejuice from Lauren Bobbert's Wild Night Out. <laughs> 